What's the latest? The mining vessel Coloma is waiting for us at the Dilithium planet. First deliveries are two Federation worlds, five non-Federation worlds, and one Starbase that would like to thank us with their signature gelato. All right then. Everybody ready? Yes, yes Captain. Captain. Let's fly. This podcast is sponsored in part by Benjamin Hart. That's me! And yours truly, Zach Arnold. And by participation from listeners like you. So let's tune in to another episode of... IPC. 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 The Intergalactic Peace Coalition Podcast. All the galaxies, all for you. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's time for another episode of the Intergalactic Peace Coalition podcast, also known as the IPC. We're really excited to have you on this awesome, awesome episode that we've got set up for you. We have new content to talk about for the first time in forever, like... With COVID pushing movies back, it's been really tough to have new conversations. And we've got a brand new conversation in store tonight. We, we've we touched on certain episodes and, and certain points in this series before, but this is going to be a complete episodic recap. That's right. This is going to be more of an episode-by-episode, season-long discussion of Season 3 of Star Trek Discovery. If you have not seen it yet, I highly recommend that you go check it out on CBS All Access, although that's not going to be its name for much longer. We'll get to that and more in just a second, but before we get too much further into the night, introductions are in order. My name is Zach, and I've been around for over 300 episodes, and I'm excited to be back for episode 315. This is this is going to be a good one. And joining me, as he has since episode one, it's my buddy, it's my co-host, Mr. Benjamin Hart. How's it going, everybody? And yeah, very excited to be back. There's a lot of stuff happening. You know, we got a new episode of WandaVision today, you know, Camp Cretaceous launch. We're going to be looking forward to discussing both of those things in detail in the coming weeks. But for right now, we got some business to take care of in the Trek universe. And uh, Star Trek Discovery has been out and finished for a few weeks now, and we've had a chance to process it all, and hopefully you guys have had a chance to binge through it and watch every episode so we can uh, get into it. And as you said, if you have not, we're we're going to go all out with spoilers, all right? We're not holding back, so uh, if you were not caught up, uh, come back when you have, um, because this is going to be an awesome discussion, and I can't wait to get into it. I mean, this this season has been going on since October of last year, so I feel like you've had time to to get caught up and the last episode the season finale was on january 7th and this recording is happening uh almost two weeks after that so right. i feel like that's been ample time to be able to get caught up if you've been behind and uh if you're just cool with spoilers then great you're gonna get a lot of them 
But it's not going to be just the two of us talking about spoilers tonight. Uh, I've got a very special guest with me in person tonight. I, I, I've got the house to myself now. I, I live in this rent house by myself. And I've got the space to be able to open it up for guest voices. And uh, we've had Mondo helping us talk about Disney movies uh, on this type of venue before. And this one's actually really special to me because we've had over 300 episodes of IPC. And not once have we ever heard this voice. So for the first time in podcast history... I, I want to give a very special welcome to my dad, who actually introduced me to Star Trek. We started with The Next Generation, and then found Voyager and Deep Space Nine on Netflix, and been watching Discovery, sometimes in person, sometimes concurrently, and just talking about it online. But uh, when I told him that this was our discussion tonight, he was like, let's talk about it. So he's been with me for football this past couple of seasons, He's with me now for IPC. It's my dad, Doug. Pops, it's exciting to have you on, finally. All right. Pops is here. First episode three, yes. ep- for 315, and it's my first episode. I'm glad to be here. I'm excited. I, Zach mentioned the topic nut I was all in because I have loved this entire series, these three seasons of Star Trek Discovery, always looking for a new way to continue the Trek saga and i really bought into star trek discovery and finished season three we were just talking before we came on air that i actually finished season three a little bit ahead of zach and and i'm texting him just gasping oh you've got to see this and he's like stop it stop it (laughs) because just the, the way the season progressed and they tied the bow on it at the very end was just perfect. And I, I told the guys, I, I, my, my eyes were leaking. My nose was running. My, my face was <laughs> smiling from ear to ear. It was just so perfect the way they wrapped it up. So I'm looking forward to the discussion. It's going to be really, really interesting because the character development is definitely one of the, the biggest parts of this season. You take a look at characters like Michael and... Saru and Tilly, and then even some some secondary characters like uh, Lieutenant Detmer. You know, they they all had some interesting progressions of their storylines that has helped them grow beyond who they were in season one. Like if you look at the episode, The Battle of the Binary Stars, the very first episode, and then you take a look at how things are at the end of season three, it's almost night and day. Like, yeah, it's the same show, but they've just taken these characters and and helped them evolve into so much more than they were in the pilot. And I think that is, like, very true to a classic Trek format, yet with their own little spin on it. If, if you've watched other Star Treks, I, I'm going to be using the Deep Space Nine example a lot tonight because... Pops and I really, really love Deep Space Nine. But if you watch the DS9 pilot with Commander Benjamin Sisko, and then you take a look at who he is by the end of Season 3, it's a night and day comparison. He He's on the verge of becoming a captain, if not already a captain, by the end of Season 3. And, you know, he's got command of his own station, of his own ship. And you take a look at how Burnham was 
you know, she she was uh, a mutineer in the pilot. Right. And again, spoiler alert, by the end of this season, she's captain of her own ship. So there, there's a lot of of character development and ebb and flow that's happened over the course of this series, particularly in this season. And it's it's just very fascinating to observe all of that. So uh, I guess the best way to start is similar to how we usually do when we're doing season recaps or movie recaps, just general thoughts and impressions as a whole. I feel like I've given a few of mine by listing like the character development. Ben, what were some of your impressions on this season as a whole, particularly as you were watching the final two or three episodes of the season? Yeah, this this season really blew me away in a lot of ways, and, and it really is, I think, the best season yet. I mean, and maybe that's not saying a whole lot, being there's only been three seasons, but like this show, I think, has continually improved on itself. And if you watch TV, you know that isn't always the case with certain TV shows. Some shows, you know, start to dip in the middle, and Discover is not doing that at all. I think it's been really fascinating. The whole travel to the future has been absolutely fascinating for me, but also what they've done with it. What they did with the characters, and as you said, like the, the character arcs that we witnessed so far have been amazing. You know, Burnham has been has come such a long way, and now she's literally at the top. You know, and I'm not saying that I just don't still have some questions about certain things. There's there's some leftover threads from especially the first part of the season, and I'm like, okay, I thought they were going to come back to that, but they didn't. And you know, I'm looking forward to seeing how they pick that up in season, you know, four or five, whatever, because you know. Series like this usually have pretty strong and long memories, so I'm not going to use that as a criticism. But what are you saying? I, I was just I was just in agreement with you. Okay, okay. It's good to be in agreement. It's good to be in agreement. Um, but overall, my impressions. I really the finale. I, I thought the series, the season premiere was was great. I loved the first part of the episodes, and I loved this finale. It was phenomenal, and really sets up for you know what's going on in the future. And 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 it didn't go certain places that I'm glad they didn't. Like you, me and you were talking about you through through text uh, a few week few days ago. Like oh, they could have you know said oh we got to go back to our own time no they didn't do that like they're they're where they belong in the future and that's so good um so i'm definitely i'm I'm hyped for the next season whenever that comes out i think they did confirm that season four is happening surprise surprise but uh you know the answers that we got about the burn all this kind of stuff and you know i love saru i love all these characters and i think they really did a great job of kind of as as you said like just tying it up a little bow and uh, here we are. Um, so I'm looking forward to get into the nitty gritty tonight. I was I was really impressed with how the crew of Discovery had to adjust to the future of their existence. They had right. jumped 900 years into the future, and they really uh, were were surprised at some of the uh, new technology, at some of the new cultural aspects of what was going on around them. Uh, their reception at planet Earth when they went back to Earth was was quite startling. And then their their search for that that remnant of the Federation and and the the trill experience. There were just so many things that they kept running into these walls, and they had to get over these hurdles. And I think they did it. They w- interwove all those little problems so well. And and you watched this crew gel from that really awkward. Uh, dinner that Saru tried to host with everybody to air their grievances. Um, it was like something out of Seinfeld, the Festivus for the rest of 
<laughs> I was thinking that, and and it just it didn't work. And and but then eventually the crew worked out their differences on their own, and they really at the that last episode, you can see what a family they are. Even with Stamets giving the stink eye uh, to uh, Michael at the very end there, uh, but they you can still feel that they overcome all their hurdles and really gel into one crew. And you're right, it really sets up. It cl- it's, it totally cleans the slate, except for some of those things like where are the Klingons, uh, but it cleans that slate and, and leaves you a blank canvas for season four. Right. One of, one of my favorite things about the, the ending of the season, and I know we're going to be jumping around a little bit. We said it'd be episode by episode, but it may be storyline by storyline. It may be topic by topic. There's just a lot to cover in this season. But, You've listened to a very long time. We're very scatterbrained when it comes to like talking about plot. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Uh, but I think one of my favorite things that they left was that Discovery is necessary. Like, Discovery as a ship is essential to the fleet right now. Right. Because there's nothing else that comes close to having the spore drive. Being able to jump from location to location like they can do. Like, they're becoming a, a first contact all over again type of ship. They're going to different parts of what used to be the Federation and saying, hey, we're still here. Do you want to still be a part of what we're doing? And they'll be like the liaison ship that's checking in on the entire quadrant. And that could be checking in on the Klingons. That could be checking in on the Andorians. You know, they're part of the alliance with the Orions right now. But it could be checking in on Andor. It could be checking in on Telar. It could be checking in on uh, Navarre. From time to time, which is now, you know, formerly Vulcan. It's called Navarre now. Right. right. Um, it could be checking in on the Klingons. It could be checking in on the Cardassians. You know, it, there's there's a lot of potential for where Discovery could go and who they're going to be delivering Dilithium to first. And it could turn into a politics game where if they're delivering stuff to Navarre and even the Klingons before they're delivering it to the Cardassians, that could piss somebody off. <laughs> so there, there's still there's still a lot of of openness in this to to try and figure out you know where is the Federation going to be picking up its pieces from because Osira mentioned a deep space station in her negotiations with uh, with the Admiral in the season finale you know she's like are you aware that this starbase engages in this type of illicit activity. And so maybe Discovery goes to some of the star bases to make sure that they're following Starfleet protocol. You know, there's a lot of potential for for what Discovery could do. And to me, that justifies keeping them in this time frame. You know, people had thought about maybe they need to go back to their own time, but there is a purpose for them right now. And it's it's evidenced by how open ended they left things at the end of the season to give them something to do for season four. Right. And I think, you know, it, it was always kind of like a head scratcher when you watch the first two seasons of like, okay, they have this spore drive. They have this really special ship. It's, it seemed almost futuristic compared to the enterprise and other, you know, Federation ships at during that time prior Mm -hmm. to the original series. And you're like, okay, what's going on here? You know, what are they trying to do here? And, then you get to the end of season two and it makes perfect sense, you know, and then you get into season three and it's like, wow, they the you know, Discovery is the one ship that can travel anywhere. Not only can it travel better than warp, it's all they've got. 
it's the only thing they have to actually travel, you know, through this and and the the action of the crew helps solve this mystery of the of the burn and do a lot of good in a very short amount of time. And you understand like this is where they belong. This is where they always belonged. You know, it just took them a little while and having, you know, you could have you could have easily just I think we've talked about this before how like you could have just gone to the future begin with like discovery could have just been set in this decade or whatever you mm-hmm. could have started there but it wouldn't have been as interesting because you have this from this point of view of these these characters in this crew that don't know anything they're finding all this out on their own and you get to find right. it out along with them right you know and just going to you know the vulcan finding out it's navarre all this kind of stuff and finding out what's happened to the federation like it's all fascinating stuff and it's just as shocking to the characters as it is to the audience, and that's what's kind of brilliant about this. Right, and, and see, there, there's different types of storytelling, and I, I learned this from one of my writing classes. There, there, the three ma- major ones that you end up seeing are uh, first-person limited omniscient, which is right. like the Hunger Games, where you're, you're experiencing the Hunger Games books through Katniss Everdeen's eyes. And you only know as much as she does. And as she discovers things, then you're discovering things as well. And then there's also um, third-person omniscient, which is basically uh, a a narrator-slash-godlike portrayal of the story, where they know everything, and they're telling how it unfolds for everybody. And then there's third-person limited omniscient where you're not necessarily looking through one particular person's eyes, but you are learning about things as everybody else is learning about things. And I feel like that's the storytelling trope that Discovery and a lot of Star Trek shows use, is it's rather an ensemble cast, and as that cast is learning about things and as they're discovering things, you are learning and discovering those things with them. And so it almost makes you a character as a viewer to a certain degree, because as these things are surprising the crew members, they're also surprising you. You're going, oh, wow. okay, they went there. Oh, wow. okay, this happened. Like as they are finding these things out, so are you. You're you're finding out right along with them that Earth isn't part of the Federation anymore. You're finding out right along with them that. Adira is has got a trill symbiont inside of them. Like it it's just it, it's it's so fascinating to watch all of these things unfurl because you truly are in a in a season of discovery. Like I don't mean to be cliche like that, but I mean the the title of the show is pretty pretty much holding true to its name. It's very aptly titled. You got to give them credit for that. Yet there are still some common themes that you see in the Star Trek universe, the whole good versus evil, when they introduce Osira, and then they take kind of a side trip. I mean, mm-hmm. every now and then they still take these side trips. When they go and help Book save his brother and his planet yeah. from Osira's oppression, that's that's just classic Star Trek. Let's go help. Let's do the Federation thing and go help release and oppressed people from the evil Osira. And, and that's just a, that was just a a good side trip. It was a feel good brother helping brother overcome a conflict and reunite. And so they still uh, keep running these different themes through 
that are classic to all of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Things that remind right. you of, of shows and movies previous. And yet, while they're doing that, they're also reminding you that sometimes those types of actions are not without consequence. Because when when Michael is torn between her duties as first officer and then her dedication to book, you know, she spent over a year with that man before discovery even showed up and she was a different person for it. And she ended up having to, you know, come to a a moment of, of truth, a moment of clarity where she's like, am I going to go and save this man and turn away from my Starfleet duties? Or do I stay at my post like a good Starfleet officer? And, she ended up facing consequences for that. She ended up having to face the music for that because even though, you know, helping books planet is very Trek in nature, it's, it almost felt like a, a TNG episode to a certain degree, like conflict arises, let's go solve the problem. And then by the end of the episode, things are a little bit better than they were at the beginning. But at the same time, Osiris mad now because of what happened. And she's like, you will regret this day or something like that. And turns out she was kind of right, too. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, you, yeah. you introduce a, a really good antagonist in the second half of the season, which is very rare to do. And then you end up culminating it in a, in a very, very different and interesting fashion in the final two episodes. Like this, it, it may only be 13 episodes, but this season's got a lot jam packed in it. Yeah, and it's funny. Um, something just a fun fact that I just came up with something that that scrolled across my Twitter feed at some point. Um, did you know that the actress that plays Osira is related to Margot Kidder? I did see that. I did see that, like her her niece or something, right? Yeah, yeah. That's, it, I'm that's... trying to. I'm trying to look up the actual okay so she is played by janet kidder janet okay and and she's a she's a direct relative of the original lois lane yeah yeah interesting because we just we just talked about superman last year you just went through the superman films not too long ago yeah and and margot kidder was kind of the the highlight of that franchise yeah niece the niece of the late margot kidder I thought Margot was was her aunt, but yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's really cool, and and Janet did a fantastic job. Like she's got a lot of charisma, very very heavy in the gravitas. I, I was trying I was trying to find like the right word, but like when when Janet Kidder's on screen, she's the one you're focusing on. Like you want to see what she does next. And she's very wrathful, very vengeful. She will stop at nothing to achieve her goals, even if that means hurting people that are the closest to her. And uh, we saw that with her with her friend who's in a chair, threatening his life and the lives right. he loves. Um, a lot of her confidants fear her because they know that if they do wrong by her, then they're pretty much doomed which is kind of the iron grip that the Orion Syndicate has had for centuries, but it's embodied in one person, which is very fascinating. And I loved her whole play, especially in those last few episodes, you know, in regards to, you know, she's done a lot of evil things, obviously. She's done some pretty bad stuff, and she's pretty much a war criminal at this point, but, like, she's 
you know, going into this, she does all these really bad things, takes over St- Discovery just so she can have a seat at the table with Starfleet and go, okay, let's let's talk about peace now. And like she doesn't even like and then, you know, the Admiral is like, you know, he, he tries to work things out. He's like, oh, okay, but you need to be responsible for your for your actions and we need to put you on trial. And she's not having any of that. It doesn't like click with her. She's tr- her actions and her goals are actually decent. But the way she's going about doing it is just screwing up the whole thing. So I loved that she had like decent, good, you know, objective there, but it was just she doesn't know how to do it right. Oh man, I wish you could see the suspicious look on my dad's face right now. I don't trust Osira. I, I, you, you have every reason not to trust her. I, I found it interesting. The whole interaction between the admiral and the AI that was there, who was the embodiment of a of a lie detector machine, right. and and he kept looking at the admiral at the admiral, going, "Yeah, she's telling the truth. She's got in my gut, she's got some kind of a a, a power that emits from her that that kind of like, uh, um, oh, the Star Trek character from Beta Z. She's got a Betazoid type." aura that masks her feelings so interesting and i think i because as soon as she leaves the negotiating table she goes right back to her ship and she goes right back to her old ways of we are doing this and we are taking this over i am done with these people and she enters into that final conflict and it just kind of confirmed my gut feeling that as soon as she got away from the table and quit acting in front of the admiral to get a seat at the table to probably gain her own foothold of power in the quote-unquote new federation. I just, there was something in my gut that told me don't trust this See, See, I think she did have really high ambitions like that too because as soon as Vance kind of turned it on her and was like, you need to stand trial, she's like, I just brought to the table a, a armistice that has been needed for a century. I think that should like grant me some clemency or something like that. I think she expected those things that she did to get to this seat of the table to just kind of wash away. And when he wasn't willing to agree to that and when he wasn't willing to uh, like have a, a pawn, basically, he was like, we need somebody that is not under your thumb of influence. Like as soon as he started seeing between the lines she got really frustrated and that's when the detector machine started the the hologram started recognizing she's lying like the like the first time he pipes up and says that was a lie was after she got flustered yeah she comes unraveled after that and her mask comes off and then the gloves come off right and, and at the very least at the very least you could take from that that she is doing this for selfish reasons. She's not That's doing like, this because, oh, I want to make peace with the Federation and you know we can all get along. It's I want a piece of the pie. I, I see that the Federation yeah. is in a position that they might be – might hear me out. And you know the old Federation had the power to go, well, we're just going to blow you away if you don't, if you don't you know, work with us. You know, the Federation is in a state of just you know, very, very tiny. So she's like, okay, I can get a piece of this and get my foot in the door, but a good person in that thing would like step aside and go, okay, this is bigger than I am. I'm part of the problem. 
I need to let somebody else take in and actually make this happen. But she wants it. It's all about her. Yeah, I think she wanted that spore drive. And when she lost Stamets, when when Michael freed Stamets and, and she lost that pawn, then she had to turn to a different tactic to get her foot in the door uh, with uh, Admiral Vance. And when that didn't work, she just went back to sheer force. Right. Which I, I think that kind of gives some insight to to how things have operated outside of the jurisdiction of Starfleet. If if you want to talk, you can talk, but you do it with a really, really big gun. And she had a pretty large ship and a few small ones that she was willing to attack Starfleet headquarters with if she didn't get her way. She wanted to she wanted to start with negotiations, but ultimately it was it was if you can't submit, then I'm gonna bring in the big guns and force you to submit. What was it Teddy right. Roosevelt said? Speak, Speak softly. softly and carry a big stick. There you go. That's Osira. More or less. <laughs> Although I have a really hard time picturing her charging up San Juan Hill. <laughs> you know, she just snuck in through the through the. She uh, kind of Trojan horsed it. She Trojan horsed it exactly. Again, another level of deception mm-hmm. that was a part of her big plan. By the way, I want to I want to backtrack, take a rabbit trail to that uh, Deep Space Nine station. Mm-hmm. Um, are are we really not sure that that's not a, a DS Nine throwback to where that station may have been taken over? by a hostile force like DS9 had been taken over by the Cardassians at one point. And so all the illicit activity going on is really because they've been, the Federation's been ousted and somebody else is really running the station. Well, somebody could have been ousted. There could be a puppeteer that is kind of controlling things that are going on. But I also feel like it's, it's, it's very true to the whole realism of the situation if you're cut off from Starfleet and you're out of contact with your supplies and your resources and, and your rules and your regulations, I mean, look at what happened to Voyager. They bent the prime directive because they were so far away from everything else. They had to do what they could because they were on their own. So, I mean, it, it, it could be, it could be a combination of any of those things. You know, the, the Emerald chain probably got their foot in the door on that starbase and started corrupting some things possibly had some takeover at higher levels but i mean i think desperate times also call for desperate measures when you've had almost a century of being disconnected from everything that you have known eventually you've got to do things that you need to to survive and yeah and that that's one of the other cool things about this season is it provides some really cool insight to you know what does life in space look like without space travel you know, with, with with dilithium resources spread so thin, the idea of being able to use warp drive and, and fly from one part of space to another is almost gone. You go on special missions to be a courier or a deliverer, and you get just enough dilithium to do your run, and that's it. And... Even then, it's kind of a risk because you don't know if the dilithium's going to explode on you or not. So it, it was it was fascinating to look at how some type of essential thing that you would need in this universe is now gone. And what does the dynamic look like when you no longer have the main thing that you need for space travel? 
it, it's almost like a, a Mad Max type of situation, but in space. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. oh, you know, you get to you kind of get to the apocalypse stage of things. And, you know, like the bare essentials like food, water or whatever, or in this case, dilithium, which is made for, you know, I, w- I want to say hyperspace. The Star Wars fan in me wants to say hyperspace. It's it's <laughs> warp. It's warp. Get in your head. Um, that's, you know, there for warp is is gone now. And it's it's at the very least it's in very short supply, and it becomes this precious resource that you know that is you know you you get it and uh, you may not get it, and you only get what you need uh, to get by. So like you know I, I think it's interesting putting the Star Trek universe in this position because you know that's it's a big take. Like we're seeing what's unfolding in the show is the future of everything. This is the future of you know whether it's enterprise or you know uh, you know uh, next generation the original series deep space and this is where it's all headed yeah. and we do there's a there's a voyager is it the same voyager ship there's, there's a voyager ship that's actually in the fleet i think it's supposed to be like a new version of it i think yeah it's it's like it's like the next the next ship in the line so it it carries a relatively similar design from the original voyager but it's not the same ship so this is this is a precedent that's been set by the Enterprise ship. The the Enterprise that Captain Picard flies is not the same Enterprise that was captained by Kirk. Right. Sometimes those ships get old and decommissioned, and you create something that's in a very similar spirit, a similar vein. Or in the case of Captain Picard's ship, uh, that Enterprise actually um, crashes or explodes. Right, and didn't didn't Kirk blow up a, uh, an Enterprise at some point, like one of the movies? I believe he did. I think he blew it up to to blow up Christopher Walken as a Klingon. <laughs> that happened. Was it Walken or or Plummer? Um, no, not Walken. I'm thinking of uh, Christopher. <gasps> See, this is a, just a rabbit trail. I just went off because my brain is just fried right now. Um, just continue because <laughs> it was Plummer. I thought it, but Lloyd, it Christopher Lloyd, he's plays Klingon, Lloyd? right? Is no. it in 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 Star Trek Four? Wait, I'm okay. I'm. Hold on a second. I'm looking this up. I'm looking this up because well, I, I I put us on this path. IMDb right now. I've I've got to find this out. I am like eighty percent sure it was Plummer, but if it's Lloyd, I might have to eat something out of. Penance. Uh, uh, Christopher Lloyd is a Mary, uh, comedian who plays the role of Klingon Commander Kruge in Star Trek Three: The Search of First Bach. Give me Genesis. He's he's the, that guy. That's the next one I'm going is is at episode three. Oh you oh yeah he's going back through it on CBS All Access. Oh, Third Search of Bach is one of the few that I've actually seen. <laughs> Wrath of Khan's a classic. Just, oh, it's so good. And it was great. And I'm going to. And that that scene at the very end of that Wrath of Khan movie where Kirk and Spock are separating and saying goodbye to each other after Spock selflessly gave himself for the ship. That's another whole episode. Sorry. Um, I, I ha- While y'all are Googling Christopher Lloyd, I had a thought about this whole um, dilemma that, that Discovery faces. It's almost when they, when they jump through the wormhole and they go forward 900 years, the, the Federation itself in that era – has almost reverted to a medieval state like the like the world did from say the height of the Roman Empire 
to the Middle Ages. Yeah, they're, they're, definitely. They're traveling around without dilithium or very limited dilithium, and and very little. It's all bartering, and and the powerful of the you know the most powerful have the 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 rule, and and there's no cooperation uh, except for your little cadre. Anyway, it's just uh, it's an interesting uh, dynamic, a uh, paradigm shift, really, for the the Federation to be in such a weak weakened state. Circling back really quick. Yeah, found something. Circling back really quick. <laughs> we were both right. <laughs> oh. So Christopher Lloyd does play Krug in Star Trek Three, but then in the sixth film, Christopher Plummer plays a Klingon named Chang. Really? Oh my gosh. <laughs> and also, um, Kurtwood Smith from that 70s show plays the Federation president in that movie. Really? I, I, I need to go back and watch this movie now so I can see if he calls somebody a dumbass. <laughs> Live long and prosper, dumbass. Free Willy plays the orca in in the start and return home in the episode four that oh, nobody watches. God. That's the same whale. What? It's, oh man! <laughs> we just call episode four the Free Willy episode, and we just we skip over it and go on to episode five. <laughs> I don't understand that movie. I've watched it two or three times, and I still never, never understood it. But uh, I don't think anybody yeah. does. Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. Um, Kirk is getting ready to retire, and he's charged with assassinating the Klingon High Chancellor. Oh, okay. I don't think and, I haven't seen this one. And so I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that the Klingon that's like trying to arrest Kirk and and bring him in for justice is Christopher Plummer. Oh, okay. So quite a contrast from Captain Von Trapp, but whatever. I, I, I'm pretty sure this is the one I was telling you about before, Ben, where he has like an eye patch and he quotes Shakespeare. Really? Like this, this, this Klingon general is obsessed with Shakespeare. And, you know, that's that's it. That's one thing that we didn't get in season three of Discovery. You mentioned it kind of off the top of the show, Pops. We didn't get anything Related to the Klingons in season three. No Klingons in season three. Nothing. Which is is interesting because I can't help but wonder if a lot of the pushback from season one influenced how much of the Klingons we got beyond that. Because I, I feel like the way they were presented in season one really, really rubbed some people the wrong way. And we saw less of them. We still saw them, but we saw less of them in season two. And now that we've jumped into the future, we had things like the Emerald Chain, and you know we we had uh, some stuff on Saru's planet, but for the most part, it was it was Earth and it was humans that we were interacting with. We didn't get a whole whole lot of alien species. This well, it's season. like it's like season one, the the antagonists were the Klingons that mm-hmm. nobody liked. Season two. The real antagonist ended up being Section Thirty One, right? Right. And then, and 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 then section then season three, it turns out to be this whole paradigm shift back to the medieval state of the Federation and and the post burn society. 
and the antagonist or is the opportunists. The opportun yeah, you're right. The opportun they they yeah. saw opportunity. the survivors. The survivors. They saw an opportunity and they take and they take advantage of it. The survivor the strong are the survivors mm-hmm. and they actually turn into the antagonist. Mm-hmm. And the Federation is the whipping boy. Well, and they're the ones that are still trying to stand up for what's right. They're still trying to do what's right. But it's very, very tough to do and very tough to enforce when your fleet is not what it used to be and your influence is not what it used to be. You know, in even in, you know, Deep Space Nine and, and Voyager, like the, the Federation's probably pretty much at its peak at that point. And you know, every time you're looking at something futuristic, you think, oh, I can't wait to see what society is going to look like in 100 years or in 200 years or whatever. You fast forward seven, eight, nine hundred years and you think, oh, it must be amazing. We've come so far. And Star Trek's always kind of been rather utopian in nature. And this season did a complete 180 and gave you a very dystopian approach. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And you, know, you bringing up Klingons, like, really was my first time like, thinking about like, how absent they were, considering, like, I feel like Klingons were such a huge part of the identity of Discovery, you know, first two seasons. Like, there was so much Klingon culture in there. Um, and, you know, you had a uh, guy, I forget his name, but uh, the, the guy that comes in, and he's, he's basically a like, human remade as a Klingon. It's uh, all kind Car- Tyler, yeah, you're right, Tyler. How did I forget his name? I love that character. Um, but, like, we don't get any mention of him, and I'm assuming, like, next season we'll get, like, find out what happened to him, you know, because, you know, it's all about, like, like one of my favorite moments in this season is, like, Burnham going back and, like, discovering what happened to her brother and, and Spock's kind of, you know, his role in unification, all this kind of stuff, and I'm assuming, like, maybe Tyler has... Something similar, you know, we don't really know about it yet, but maybe, you know, he had some kind of, you know, part in maybe bringing the Klingons into the Federation eventually, maybe. Well, Worf tried to have a hand in it at one point. He was the Federation ambassador to the Klingon Empire for a time before coming back to Starfleet and becoming a captain. According to, like, the official canon comic books that help prelude Star Trek Picard, Worf actually becomes Captain of the Enterprise after Picard gets promoted to Admiral. Really? Wow. Do do the, folk, do the uh, Klingons ever become part of Starfleet or Federation my in no- canon? To my knowledge, no. But my knowledge of the stuff outside of the TV shows is rather limited. Yeah. We didn't get a whole lot of insights into them in Picard and obviously we haven't gotten much out of them from discovery. So, um, I feel like their sovereignty is something that means a lot to them. They did join an alliance with the Federation in order to fight a common enemy in deep space nine. But I think that's as far as they would go is signing the Kittimer accords, forging a military alliance, but formally joining the Federation I just feel like the Federation's values don't align enough with Klingon values for them to feel like that's worth doing. Right. But, I mean, as we learn, you know, the Romulans and the Vulcans made it work, you know, and changed the name of Vulcan, like, you know, and and became, like, one state to themselves. So, like, you know, I would like to think that some progress has been made 
for Klingons. Um, it'd be interesting, but they didn't mention it this season. So it's, it's been almost a millennium. So I mean, that that was my point. I was fixing to jump in with. I have a hard time remembering the shift in timeline. Season one is occurring before the Kirk era. Right. right. So the Klingons, and if I understand correctly, the explanation of why the Klingons looked differently is because they were from a different um, sect of Klingons from the, the home planet, and that's why they looked a little different, and there was the conflict within the Klingon Empire that the, the godlike Klingon was trying to uh, lead everybody back to the original values. And so we finish off the Klingons and their interaction in season one, but they are pre-Kirk Klingons. Now we jump in, in, with Discovery 900 years into the future. Right. What happened to the Klingons in 900 years from pre-Kirk to post everything else we know? Well, I mean, it even goes beyond the, the temporal Cold Wars that, yeah. that get mentioned in Enterprise. You know, Enterprise touches on time travel a little bit and talks about, you know, how there's there's time wars that are happening centuries ahead of everything that we've known. And this this season of Discovery is set even further beyond that. Like by this point, I think the the temporal accords have been in place for a couple hundred years and time travel has been banned, which makes which makes Michael and the rest of Discovery kind of an abnormality. And they have to find ways to, to cover their tracks and cover up the fact that they're from the past. Because if they're found out, then they're in violation of the time travel treaty. Yeah. So again, that, that blank palette that we have, mm-hmm. the blank canvas we have for season four, mm-hmm. could bring back what did, how did the Klingons evolve mm-hmm. in a thousand years? Or did they? Or uh, did they at all? Or did they revert, you know, back to a more warlike society? Well, I mean, a hundred years without without warp drive, right. you you kind of become materialistic and you want to, like, secure your borders and you want to your empire and preserve your honor and all that sort of stuff. Like, they could definitely go back to their warrior ways with a, a situation like this. If anybody would be going Mad Max in a situation like this, I think it would be the Klingons. Well, yeah. an interesting point also, though, at the end of the season three, the shift in the cultural focus of the Vulcan um, Romulan alliance or merging is who comes in riding into is the cavalry, the warlike cavalry at the end of season three to save Burnham and Discovery's butt. It's Navarre. It's Navarre. And I don't think Vulcans would ever have run to save someone else in a in a warlike manner. Especially the when the last ones to get into a conflict. Especially when they don't consider themselves members of the Federation anymore. Why would they go to aid somebody who isn't their ally? Like that that sounds like something that would be more Romulan in nature. And so you're you're seeing like both heads showing the the logic of maybe this is in our best interests to go to war so that we can forge this alliance again. Like maybe maybe having both of them together again is allowing the better sides of both of them to prevail. And that was yeah. an interesting thing to take a look at in this season. You know, for all of the stuff that we had 
with the burn and the black boxes and trying to, to trace the source of what happened in the middle of all of that, the seventh episode, you've got unification three, which took a look at the Vulcan and Romulan cultures and, and the, the pro councils that they've got and the, the, the order of absolute candor, which was something we saw in Star Trek Picard, and apparently it's been continuing, and Burnham's mother joins that group and right. stands in for her as an advocate. Like, you got to see a little bit of, of Vulcan logic meeting Romulan emotion during that tribunal and seeing just, yeah, how far they've come, but also seeing how there's there's still parts of each of them that feel like like they are the... I don't want to call themselves the superiors, but maybe like the ones to turn to in different situations because the, the Romulans had one idea about what to do with that secret information. The Vulcans had another idea of what to do with it. And it ended up being almost like a split decision because of it. Right. And, and, and you know, it's interesting you bring up Navarre because, you know, Burnham deduces like she, they're, they're here because of me. I think yeah. she says that that they're they're here to support me, but at the same time, make the argument like argument that like they weren't just there because of her. Like that's a lot of ships and a lot of firepower to risk for just Burnham. Like obviously, the Federation has made a good impression on them, and they want to continue that relationship, you know. And you know that's a huge thing, you know, going forward, you know. And I'm just I'm very curious about you know like. Like you guys were saying, like if anyone would be become isolationist <laughs> in a time like this, um, it would be the Klingons. Mm -hmm. And so, like they very well, like it may not be progress. It may be they may be they regress. And and you know, there's so many other species out there that we haven't heard about yet. That uh, you know, seasons four, five, and six are really going to have a work overtime to kind of get into it and find out what's going on there because I'm you know there's a lot of questions this this season does a really good job of addressing a lot of really interesting things but still a lot of unanswered questions out there that I'm curious about myself yeah I, I think my, my favorite like mystery that ends up getting solved is the burn you know you, you yeah. arrive you arrive at the end of season two and the beginning of season three kind of exploring this new world that's that's very similar and yet also very different all at the same time and it's a, it's this it's this very i don't know i don't know the word for it but it's very unsettling right and you're looking at this going this isn't the future that i thought we would have in star trek what happened and at first it sounds like a bunch of of mythos and lore it's like oh the burn happened like it, it's very the federation yeah the, does the federation even exist anymore i thought that was a local legend that kind of thing and over time michael starts collecting clues and starts fixating on you know does the burn have a point of origin or did it all actually happen simultaneously and it's almost like a like a mystery series where she's finding clues and putting those clues together and eventually does find the point of origin 
And it really kind of surprised me what the point of origin actually was. Like from a storytelling perspective, from a writing perspective, this is not something that I would have come up with way out of left field. Yeah. And yet still actually makes sense when you really think about it. Yeah, it's it's it, yeah. Sukal is pretty. I'll t- you anybody feel free to take that. Sukal was was a, a big surprise. I was not expecting an organic being having a connection to subspace. Like that's nothing that we've ever seen before, and they tackled it really, really well. Well, I, I was going to say another point to the Navarre situation is they thought they were the cause of the burn. Right. The Vulcans showed another level or the Vulcan Romulan Alliance or melding showed another vulnerability in their emotions in that they were mortified. They were embarrassed to the point of becoming Mm. isolationists Mm -hmm. because they thought their um, experiments with project SB 19, that alternate space travel was, um, was the cause of the burn. And they retracted to themselves, but the Sakal character is is very interesting, um, to especially to me as a dad of a special needs kid. The Sakal character really um, exhibited uh, because he had been by himself for so long with no other organics and only the holographic images that were programmed to respond a certain way. Um, he really turned into. Um, a, a, almost a, a, the look of a special needs child like my like my middle son. He had no social skills. The the only people that he'd ever interacted with were holograms, and they adapted to his personality rather than helping shape his personality. And so he didn't know how to interact with people. He didn't know how to converse properly. And it it was it was fascinating to see. You know, when when Michael was there for a time, she tried to instill some social skills lessons about, you know, this is how you interact with people. This is how you converse with people. Have you never had these instructions? And he was like, I did, but it was a long time ago, and that hollow isn't in use anymore or something like that. So, like, everything that he's ever learned has been a simulation. And when he finally encountered reality, it was startling and Again, something very, very fascinating and very different that this show is doing that brings about, you know, another dynamic character and some dynamic storytelling that could be an exhibit towards special needs or it could just be an exhibit towards uh, artificial reality and the influence that it's having on our lives. It could be a commentary on how if we if we get too involved in in AI and virtual reality that it'll separate us too far from actual reality. Like there's a lot of different ways that you could spin Sukal's character and an explanation for why he behaves the way that he does. Yeah. And, and big shout out to the actor who betrayed Sukal, um, Bill Irwin, who I think did a magnificent job of like portraying someone who had literally been, raised by computers like had been raised in a, in in a in a state that never actually you know interacted with anyone you know organic 
and that whole thing and just being you know living in this you you know there's always been like this what if you you know you you just lived in you know in complete isolation like this is exactly what this guy goes through um and it's fascinating and i think he portrays that so well and you know also just the whole idea of like him ha- being kind of connected to the crystals and you know it's it's this so weird and also so star trek <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think it's uh it's very Star Trek just kinda like, oh yeah, it's a person and when he gets upset he can cause a bird. Like that's freaking crazy, but also so in line with what we were expecting. Oh yeah, yeah. And and that was something that you were talking to me about before the show pops was how he basically had a, a, a flare up. He basically had like a temper tantrum. Yeah, that, a temper tantrum. That yeah. that caused a disruption in subspace in the nebula that almost caused a minor second burn while Book and Burnham were trying to make their way to the ship. Like it, it almost doomed their ship because of how upset he got. And the reason he got upset was he was being confronted with reality and confronted with his fears. Mm-hmm. Which is something, which is something pretty much everyone goes through at some point or another, and the only difference is Sukal has some sort of genetic connection to subspace, which again, as I mentioned earlier, is nothing that we have seen in Star Trek before. Usually, humans can interface with subspace through their ships and computers and, and studies and stuff like that, but to have an organic connection to subspace. It's very in line with what Discovery does already, though, because you've got the connection to the mycelial network Stamets, yeah. with Stamets being able to go through things with the spore drive. Like the precedent is there, but to to tap into that potential with a character who can manipulate subspace with their with their emotions through just raw power. Like he doesn't even know that he's doing it. Yeah, it's it's just raw power. But to to take someone who can harness that and channel that and you realize that it would take a really really big tantrum to cause that type of explosion across the entire quadrant and in the season finale we find out that it was his grief of losing his mother that caused the burn like I was expecting some sort of nefarious plot I was expecting some kind of subterfuge or some attempt to overthrow the federation but no it was a kid mourning the loss of his mom that caused everybody to lose the ability to travel at warp speed like that's just crazy and yet so star trek yeah did they actually try to explain how he gained that connection to subspace did they come up with some kind of theory in within the show i think the doctor did I, I think yeah, Hugh, Hugh had some Hugh connection had a, to him. Hugh, Hugh had a well, he had like an interpersonal connection, right. but I think I think his working theory was that because of the the radiation that his mom was exposed to in the nebula while she was pregnant with him, he built up some sort of immunity to it that allowed him to establish a connection with subspace because he was born and lived in the nebula because not only is does he have a connection to the network but he also 
can survive in there where everybody else that goes in there, including the, the Kelpians that were with him when he arrived and his mother, die from exposure. Right. Uh, whereas he is completely yeah. fine. Everybody else had to have like medicine for radiation poisoning exposure, but yeah. Sukal lived there for a hundred years. Yeah. So he yeah. had he had an immunity to the radiation from the nebula. And I think it was because of the the fact that his mom suffered the radiation poisoning with him in utero. And so through kind of a natural immunity like a human mother would pass to her children from breastfeeding or something. Possibly, yeah. And so through whatever genetic mutation that occurred while she was expecting him, you know, he was able to survive the nebula and establish a, a connection with subspace. Yeah. It, it, I don't have the science know-how behind it, but I believe that was Hugh's working theory. And uh, from from what they were talking, it sounded like that connection to subspace would diminish once he got out of the nebula. I think the radiation from the nebula was amplifying his connection. Yeah, and, I, yeah. And once he left the nebula, he wasn't able to tap into that quite as much. Which is basically, you know, English for like, once he gets out of the nebula, he there's no danger of him causing another the burn. Right. Um, which is which is something that you immediately jump to, like, okay, this guy's going to have to worry about controlling his emotions for the rest of his life so he doesn't destroy everyone? Right. It, it's, it's a really good plot device in that sense that it's the nebula that, that amplified his, his abilities. And so once you take him out of the nebula and, and back to the home world, all he has to worry about is learning social skills. And if he throws a temper tantrum, it's not a big deal. Right, exactly. So, you know, and that's because that's a huge thing. And I'm also wondering, you know, what's, what's this guy going to, you know, how is this guy going to deal with this? Because even if he's out of the nebula and he can survive like normally, he still has this terrible, terrible thing happened that he caused. It right. wasn't his fault, but it right. happened, you know, through him. And like he's going to kind of have to wrap his mind around that and kind of, you know, probably grieve about it for a while and, and figure out how to move on because even though as, as you know Saru puts it it wasn't your fault but he still it happened because of him so like it's going to be a enormous weight on him in the future probably can can we also just give some props to Doug Jones the actor who plays Saru I love him so much like like we've always seen him in the in the the Kelpian outfit but then he got to portray himself as a human through the adaptations that the hologram made. He got to take all of that Star Trek stuff off and he got to work as just an actor. You know, he, he just got to to express his range outside of the, the Kelpian costume. And I feel like he knocked it out of the park. How clever of an idea was that, that they get on the ship... And they're not just there. The computer changes their appearance, and they're different species. Then, mm -hmm. and then, and then you know, were. and yet the the computer made them all relatively humanoid, because you know you you didn't you didn't the only thing you did was reversed Kelpian to human, but the humans became like trills and um what what was it? There was 
um, the nose ridges. Oh yeah, yeah. people the Bajorans made 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 them look like Bajorans and Trills and um, Zahirs, I think, or, or Zahirs. I forget how to pronounce it. But one of them was Vulcan, I think. Later. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think Gray was supposed to be a Vulcan. Yeah, 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 at one point. Yeah. So yeah, all you did was slap some pointy ears and some spots or some nose ridges on everybody else, and then you got to take the Kelpian costume off of Doug Jones. And let him just work as a as a human actor for once, and I thought that was really cool because, you know, not only has he done stuff in Discovery, but he's been kind of that big uh, costume type actor in a lot of other things as well. He was the water creature in The Shape of Water, yeah, among other things, and so he he's done a lot of that type of you know, costumed and animated acting. But this was this was like a a chance for him to do something as a human. And I thought that was really clever and really cool. Yeah, I I love that inclusion. And, you know, it's it's amazing how like, you know, have you you have him and he's really an incredible actor all his own, but like because of his height and because you know his his physical attributes, he's like, oh yeah, we really like you as an actor, but we're gonna put you under a mask, <laughs> you know, we're gonna put you in this, all this makeup and you're not gonna be able to see your face. Um, so I, I'm sure it was great to at least for a few days, you know, uh, not have to put on all that makeup and whatever and just kind of be himself, and it, it was great to actually see his face for once. Yeah, it was. It was because you, you, you can see him uh, at like movie premieres and stuff. And you're like, who is that? But you don't <laughs> you don't really like, oh, the really tall guy. Oh, he must play Saru. He must play mm-hmm. someone else, you know. Yeah, right. Exactly. He could but... play a really tall and skinny Wookiee if he was ever in Star he Wars. Could, he could be a Wookiee. I could see him as a Wookiee. Absolutely. Uh, let me let me see. I'm trying to see what else he's done um hellboy 2 hellboy 2 he was he was in the strain he's done a lot of horror movies he's been like the big bad creature in a lot of horror movies so like the thing he's the really creepy character that like he has no eyes and he puts his hands up and that his eyes are in his palms oh yeah really really bad really just like as someone who is not a fan of horror movies like nope 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 oh yeah uh a marble hornet's story um let me see what else was he in i think i've seen oh wow he was a teen wolf i'm sorry doug jones he oh he was also we were just talking about last week he was the silver surfer in rise of the silver surfer fantastic four kidding no i'm not oh oh, that is not something to be proud of (laughs) i don't know i think he i think if they ever brought back silver surfer i think they should get doug jones he was good he was will, the only good part. I will agree to that. Like Doug Jones is just a good actor. Like if you're if you're going to bring back the Silver Surfer, then yeah, you need to bring back Doug Jones. I will agree to that. So it's a big change in character for him to be the the kind, sensible, nurturing, uh, you know, very logical character that he plays in Star Trek Discovery. Mm-hmm. This is true. He played a character named Joey in Men in Black 2, and now I want to look up who Joey in Men in Black 2 was. He played 
a clown dude in Batman Returns. Batman Returns. Interesting. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Joey Joey's just this this really, really tall person with a really, really long pair of legs and an almost as long head of hair. <laughs> that's that's Doug Jones for you. Oh my gosh. That's funny. Okay. Going going back to going going back to season three, one of the other storylines that we got that I really wasn't expecting to get was a a two parter that takes you back to the the mirror universe. Yeah. Philippa Giorgio ends up having some time at Terra Firma, which I was I was not really counting on that being a thing, and yet like they made it a pretty important part of the middle third of the season where it's like, yeah, she's not feeling so good. Yeah, things aren't really looking so good for her. You moved her too forward in time and now she's too far away from her universe to function properly. Like they did all these things to her character that eventually wrote her off of the show. Michelle Yeoh isn't on Discovery anymore. Yeah. But I heard that they they did that so that they can get her onto her own Section 31 program. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, from from what I understand, they're going to be doing like a Michelle Yeoh, Philippa Giorgio Adventures of Section 31 type of show. Yeah, I also heard she's – I think she's got other stuff going on too because I've heard that she's going to have not one but two roles in the Marvel Cinematic Universe very soon. She's coming back in Guardians 3, I think, and I think she's going to have a role in Shang-Chi. I could see that. I, I could see that in, in both of those. So she might be busy, that's all I'm saying. Michelle Yeoh's going to be busy, and Star Trek's about to get really busy, because if you're going to get her her own Section 31 show, and then you're going to get Anson Mount, his own uh, Star yeah. Trek series. You're Strange gonna, New Worlds. You're going to have Strange New Worlds, you're going to have Section 31, you're going to have Discovery, and you're going to have Picard all going at the same time. That's crazy. Like this has got to be a record for like the amount of Star Trek shows going on at one time. Well, are you including Lower Decks in that? I mean, I guess you could. I mean, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> I feel about the Lower Decks about the same way you guys feel about the Wild. <laughs> it's just why. <laughs> It, I, I'll say this about Philippa Giorgio, though, to get back on top of it. She is one of the best characters I love to hate. Love to she hate. She was yeah. so good. She was so good in just being an ass. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's, and that's kind of how they do a, you know, a eulogy for her when they're standing around talking about her after she's kind of written off the show. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they stand around and they talk about how uh, she is she is the best badass that ever we know walk the, the federation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm gonna, it's I'm gonna uh, miss I, character. <laughs> so, well, because her her interactions with characters like Michael and Saru were always just they they had a it it, it was it it was layered. Mm-hmm. That's the best way to put it. Was it was yeah. layered because it it wasn't about trying to get close, even though there was like an unspoken closeness. Like she, she never wanted to get vulnerable, and yet her actions kind of spoke for themselves at certain intervals, 
where you realize she made this decision and she said the thing that she said because she had a connection to someone like Michael or Saru. Yeah, but her and Burnham never really got along very well, but you could tell they both needed each other. They both were really wanting to get close because they both lost their perspective versions of mm-hmm. themselves. You know, you know, Burnham obviously felt responsible for the death of Giorgio in, in the Prime Universe, and, you know, Giorgio ended up kind of becoming a better person, you know, slowly but surely, and, you know, resented losing her, her adopted daughter so like you know i like that whole thing of kind of bringing it back around and 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 putting her back in that universe but as this renewed Giorgio, this one that you know does have compassion does have just a little bit she's not she's still pretty ruthless but she's just she's turned the page a little bit she's a little bit less so than she used to be and that just goes flies in the face of everything that universe is about because everyone is an asshole in that universe and they're all just bloodthirsty monsters and she's not quite there and it just it of course it drives them nuts and you know also it it makes her better and also i mean kind of like i don't know putting her back to that universe maybe presents some hope for that universe that you put a you you kind of renewed someone you put them back in the universe maybe they can maybe she can kind of turn things around eventually well maybe I think I think the reason everybody hated her was because she took Kelpian off the menu. <laughs> as soon as that happened, everybody wanted to turn on her. I was that, like, was, that was the deal breaker. I was like, damn, Saru must really be a delicacy if they're going to put them to work and then eat them for dessert afterwards. I don't know. But I... I I think it's interesting that they're devoting this much attention to the mirror universe because I think the only other show that ever gave it this much attention would be Deep Space Nine. You had a little bit of it in The Next Generation. You had a little bit of it in the original series. You had a little bit of it in Enterprise, even. There were like two or three episodes where Enterprise explored the the parallel universe with the Terran Empire and that kind of thing. But really, to have like an entire story arc in season one... And then to be revisiting it in this depth in season three, like they're really, really touching on it. And I can't help but wonder if that is to bring it back uh, or, or just keep bringing it back. Let it keep resurfacing in different seasons. Or is it meant to involve some sort of crossover with another show? Is this, mirror universe going to be the bridge between a couple of existing shows and allow characters to like cross over from one to another i kind of hope not uh, only because the the mirror universe is so like you said everybody is so mean and bad and ruthless there's no virtue in it at all well and that that's what makes it such a fascinating contrast between yeah. the super virtuous federation you know the the timeline that we've got here versus the the universe and the timeline that's presented somewhere else um speaking of of timelines it it took me looking up you know different fun facts and stuff but they actually made reference to a different timeline in this show the section 31 agent that's interrogating everybody when they show up at starfleet um he actually mentions that the time soldier that they encounter traveled from an alternate universe 
created by the temporal incursion of a Romulan mining ship. That Romulan mining ship is the one that helped create the Kelvin timeline with Chris Pine, the J.J. The J. J. Abrams Star Trek movie universe. That, that Star Trek movie was, was started, and that, that whole timeline was splintered off and created because of that Romulan mining ship chasing after Spock and ending up in a different timeline after coming out of the out of the black hole. So this universe knows about the Kelvin universe. They know it exists. And I'm imagining that means that somebody has traveled there at some point and possibly returned and reported on it. Otherwise, I don't think they'd have as many details about the situation as they currently seem to. So somebody's been to that one and somebody's been to the, the Terran Empire universe at least recently enough to know that the timeline is splitting apart. And so it's, it's interesting to think that not only are we aware of what's going on in the time frame of this universe, but we're also aware that, you know, the Terran universe exists and the Kelvin universe exists. Like just that awareness lets you know that there is some cohesiveness to all these franchises. Yeah. It would be, wouldn't it be interesting if, I don't know. Could they do something with the Kelvin universe? You know, kind of have a, a bit of crossover. I mean, we've we've already shown that we can cross into alternate universes. Like that is a different timeline, just like the not just like the mirror universe, but something similar. So, like, I'd like to see what's going on in that universe a thousand years ahead of time. You know, oh man, if you do that. I feel like you would have to involve time travel as well and get somebody from the Kelvin movies in order to help like bring it all together because otherwise it would just be some other universe. It'd be hard to distinguish it from some other parallel universe without having someone like Zachary Quinto, for example. Like have Ethan Peck interact with Zachary Quinto the way, Ooh, yeah. the way you had Grant Gustin interact with Ezra Miller in Crisis on Infinite Earths. That would be crazy. Um, you know, I'm wondering, is it canon? I mean, it is canon in this universe that, like, you know, Spock died in the Kelvin universe, correct? Like, he disappeared into a black hole, and then I guess they don't know what happened to him? I want, They never really addressed that in Discovery, but I assume that was the case. Uh, I, Yeah, that, that, is, that is one thing that confused me was when she was on Navarre, she could have easily tried to look up her brother, but she didn't. It seemed like she was a little preoccupied with the boxes. So that could also potentially be another storyline in season four is looking up her brother's legacy. Cause I mean, it's assumed that his efforts on Romulus in the next generation unification one and two was what helped set the precedent for the episode unification three, but that's all just very implied. I'd like to see like official records and stories and hollows and, things about his legacy that helps Michael realize that, you know, he made a difference in the galaxy even after she was gone. I was going to say, the jump forward 900 years, how long do Vulcans live? Can Spock really come back into the series as Spock, or is he just reminiscence? I think think it could be as a hologram. I think it could be as a flashback. I I think there's ways that you can bring Ethan Peck back into the fold, because he was a great Spock, and I bet... I bet he serves as Anson Mount's 
number one eventually on the the Star Trek spinoff that's going to be centered on the Enterprise. Oh, no doubt. Yeah, the Pike series. Yeah. I bet he shows up in that. And, you know, maybe he creates some sort of, you know, private holographic recording for Michael in that show that she then discovers in season four of Discovery, allowing for something to be like, I'm recording this for the future in case you find it. And then she ends up finding it in Discovery. And so she sees the message of her long lost brother that he recorded in a different series for her. Yeah, like, you know, because I think they're sworn to secrecy. Like, legally, they can't yeah. talk about Discovery or Burnham they, or any of those guys. Else. They can't, they can't, they can't talk about it with any person. But he might be able to create a personal log and encrypt it in a way that only she'd be able to decode it or something like that. Yeah, I could totally see that being something that comes along the lines and kind of weaves Ethan Peck back into that because, like, even though we know the legacy of Lair Nimoy, all this kind of stuff, you can't really use that version of the character. Plus, like, Burnham is connected to Ethan Peck's, like, the younger Spock. And so right. that's what you really, that's the emotional touch point that you'd want to pull on at some point. About the longevity of Vulcans, but but Burnham's mother shows up in the nine hundred year jump universe of Nemo. well, yeah, because she had one of the time travel suits. She she had one of the one of the one of the Red Angel suits, and then Michael created a new one, and that's the one that she made her time jump with. Okay, yeah, according to Screen Rant, I don't know. This is not a very good source. They're saying two hundred years old. Of Vulcans of, uh, can live up to 200. Um, of course, you have to consider that that Spock died and then came back to life. So that that could yeah. like I'm not saying it's going to lengthen his life to a thousand years, but it you know could help him live longer than the average you know Vulcan. Isn't, isn't the theory true that he landed on the Genesis planet? So. Probably it's the the Genesis effect that brings him back to life. So the Genesis effect is one factor to consider. Another one to consider is the precedent that got set in the season finale of Star Trek Picard. You now have the ability to transfer someone's consciousness into an android's body. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Because Captain Picard was on the verge of dying in the season finale. And they captured his consciousness and put him into the body of an android that was designed to decay over the course of the next couple of decades. So he would eventually, quote unquote, die. But theoretically, you could put that consciousness into an android that doesn't have a decay matrix. Hmm. And you could have a consciousness instilled in an android's body that could live on indefinitely. Which kind of parallels the idea of the trill and the katra that a Vulcan can transfer yes. from the Vulcan to even a human. Yes. In Star Trek II, the motion picture, mm -hmm. Spock actually transfers his katra to Bones McCoy. How ironic is that? Oh, yeah, that's that's hilarious. <laughs> so, yeah, there's, there's transferal of spirits. There's storage of consciousness. There's the Genesis effect. I'm sure there's a lot of different scientific ways that you could find to bring Spock back into the fold. Speaking it's... of, speaking of, oh, go, go ahead, Ben. No, no, you go ahead, please. I was gonna, I was gonna 
bridge the mention of the trill and the, the different consciousness and break off and, and bring up the uh, Adira and Grey characters. Yeah. And their role yeah. in season three. Yeah. And how you bring in Stamets and Hugh and how they all kind of, and the, the, the trip to the trill planet. And mm-hmm. I, I just, I thought that character was, was very interesting. Uh, and Zach and I talked about this. I, I'm old, okay? And, and I know that they were probably trying to normalize a social concept mm-hmm. in our society by, by giving Adira, wanting to address Adira with the uh, multiple pronoun, they, and, and instead of a gender pronoun. But, okay, logically, Trek thinking mm-hmm. to me, okay, a trill, it makes sense that you would address a trill as a they. Yeah, exactly. Sure. them because even in ds9 we got to know the dax trills mm-hmm. as and all their previous personalities and even cisco called the female dax old man yeah because that's the that's the trill that he grew up with yeah knew and so when we when we start talking about adira it, with a different type of pronoun that encompasses all of her personalities <laughs> That she has to come to grasp with, which mm. I find quite interesting in and of itself. She oh. didn't, she didn't even know her own background, and that's why they have to figure it out. But that the most um, emotional one to her was Gray, and they bring him into the series where you can actually see him, and mm. then Stamets can see him, or, or Hugh. Hugh can see him, but Hugh has been to another universe. He, well, yeah, Hugh. He's Hugh's... Been to another consciousness hugh has had multiple consciousness but it was also the holographic matrix that helped right anthropomorphize right gray's consciousness as well so i'll I'll just say this i'm I'm gonna jump out there and say this i developed an affinity for the adira and gray characters yes i i like them yeah and i like gray as a part of the show and and it just it, they they were they were a side character arc, character arc. Can you have a character arc? Sure. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Yeah. Totally. And, and I I enjoyed watching them develop. Again, another good job of character development mm-hmm. to get from where we first meet Adira to where we see them end in episode three when everything kind of melts down on the uh, Nebula planet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's. That's also a testament to the writing staff that not only can you introduce a new character in this season, because Adira shows up when they reach Earth. Adira is one of the inspectors that shows up when they reach Earth. Not only can you introduce a new character in the first third of a season, but you can provide a compelling storyline for them throughout all the way up to the season finale. Not only do you do you bring somebody in, but you're like hitting the ground running with what you're doing with their development to where it's not just somebody that wants to escape from Earth and, and run away from responsibilities in life, which is what it seemed like at first. But then to find out that a human is serving as a host for a Trill symbiont, never been done before, leads to a lot of flack and backlash from the culture of the Trill homeworld. Like, you get an entire episode dedicated to that. You get an episode right, dedicated right. to the 
uh, relationship dynamic between Adira and Gray, and you know you get to see what happened between them uh, as as Gray was was passing away and the symbiont was passing to Adira. Like you're you're getting to understand their relationship dynamic better, and it just helps you really really sympathize for them by the season finale to the point that even if Stamets and Hugh don't quite understand the dynamic, they still love and support them anyways to the point. And this was one of my favorite scenes in the whole season, honestly, was when Hugh finally did see gray in the holodeck or in the, in, in the hollow on the ship. First instinct was a big old dad like hug <laughs> and gray stiffened like what's going on here and then he melted into him uh-huh yeah uh-huh like and i was like oh that type of relationship dynamic is not just like like lover to lover or 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 uh previous host to previous host but it's gotten to the point where the four of them are like a family now and and even stamets was talking at one point when he was being all chained up by Osiris' accomplice down in the engine room, like, I've got a husband and I've got a kid to think about. I'm sure you've wanted to have a family or something like that, like trying to, to evoke the emotion from his captor type of thing. It's a, it's a typical cliche plot thing that you do in, when you're the captured one. But the fact that Stamets is now considering Adira and Gray a part of his and Hugh's family, like... I feel like that's another thing that could end up being included in season four is just furthering that exploration of a non-traditional family format and possibly finding a way to bring back Gray. Because Ian Alexander did a good job, and with the advanced technology we've got, it's possible that you can find a way to bring that consciousness to life again so that we can see them as a character throughout the whole rest of the series. You mean like a mobile hollow emitter? <laughs> like like the one from Voyager? <laughs> the holographic doctor stole that hollow emitter from the future, future. And this is even further in the future from that. So, I mean, getting a, a emitter like that or reconfiguring the decks of Discovery to be just one giant holodeck you know, that type of retrofit seems very doable. So I think we have not seen the last of Grey in one way or another. The whole dynamic of the four of them. Mm-hmm. I, I bet they explore that even more in the next season. Now, speaking of the four of them, there's something that happens in this last episode, or the last couple episodes. It's specifically something that happens as a look in this last episode. They're like, okay, something's going to go down the next season because – you have Burnham taking Stamets out of the equation to mm-hmm. save him, but also save the Federation. You realize that she did it for the right reasons, and everything works out, but Stamets wasn't happy about it. No, I think doesn't. that's... And, and like he's very distressed by the fact that his, his entire family is down on that planet, and he can't do anything about it. And Burnham is kind of the, the vessel in which this happens. Um, I think this is going to cause a rift between them. Um, I I hope it doesn't last a whole long time because like Stamets needs to kind of wake up and realize, okay, dude, she was doing this for the right reasons. 
um you know it, it wasn't you know out of you know it wasn't lack of care of his for his family but you know a care for you know the survival of starfleet but at the same time it happened and there, there's that one little look of like you know everyone's kind of together and stamets is like nah i'm not feeling this like you can tell there there's a grudge there yeah when, when burnham walks onto the bridge in that last scene everybody's happy except stamets who gives her the major stink eye Yes. That, that guy, that character, that man can hold a grudge like nobody's business. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And in, in, I like that, though, because to, to continue that whole everything is perfect, everything is great type of storyline, it's been done before. I'd really like to see an entire season where Stamets is just holding a grudge and being short and professional and courteous to Burnham addressing her as captain all the time like just completely overdoing it like like commander stamets what's the update on the on the on the spore drive we should have it ready to go in a couple of hours captain you know kind of cynically just just very 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 cynically and, and sassy and curtly and just like Obviously showing disdain, but also maintaining the bare minimum of professionalism just to be as bitchy about the situation as possible. You mean kind of like that relationship Stamets already has with the other engineer who's one of my favorite characters, <laughs> Commander Jet Reno? You know, <laughs> yes, I love Reno. I love <laughs> Reno. And I don't know if Burnham would let Stamets get away with it. You know, because Stamets and, and Reno are almost colleagues. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he could get away with it with Burnham as his captain, but I can still see a lot of sniping going on there between the two of them until he decides to finally get over it. And I think it's Hugh that's going to tell him, get over it. It's possible. Uh, it's possible. Hugh's kind of the voice of reason between the two of them. But it, it I, I think that'll be another interesting dynamic in the next season. And and that's one of the things that I really like about season three specifically is I feel virtually certain that season four is going to happen, you know, with, with COVID affecting recording schedules and stuff like that, it may take a little longer for it to come about, but I feel like season four is going to happen. But even if it didn't, the way that season three tied up, it was tied up nicely enough that if this was the complete series, I'd be pretty satisfied with how things turned out. Unlike that other series that you were so disappointed with, Firefly. Oh. <laughs> that had such potential and then just... Oh. <laughs> Boy, Ben, that brings up a lot of memories, doesn't it? That's uh, that's uh, I'm still not over it, all right? Still got PTSD from that. Drag that one up, but but you're right. The, this series, this season three, really answered a lot of questions, mm-hmm. and 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 I, I've got to say, what evoked such emotion for me in that last episode, the last scene of the last episode, was when Burnham walks on to the the bridge as the captain. Yeah, because yeah. you have now seen Burnham run that full gamut of. Uh, of what you described at the very beginning of tonight's show, mm-hmm. from outcast to captain's chair, yeah, and all that she goes through, and the angst that she goes through, yeah. I mean, she really struggles with that. Uh, the one side of her that Star Stark Fleet regulation, 
and the other side that is fierce loyalty to her friends and family and, and knowing mm-hmm. to do what's right and, and, and bucking the system to do what's right, ultimately. Um, and then she finally gets that captain's chair. And it's just, it's just like you just want to stand up and cheer mm. for Michael Barnum. <laughs> from, from, a, from a mutineer in the pilot to earning the captain's chair the right way by the end of the third season. That's a really solid character arc. That is, that is a really, really solid character arc. And here's the thing that excites me the most, I think. Just based on our experiences with Trek, seasons three and onward better, are better. usually some of the better portions of Star Trek. If we felt like season three is maybe some of the best we've gotten from Discovery thus far... I can only imagine how much better season four could end up being compared to season three. Well, and, and that final two set two episodes in season two mm-hmm. were just jaw dropping, amazing effects, cinematic quality, amazing, you know, uh, storyline with the, the battle with section 31. Um, I, when we finished season two, I was just like, how does this get any better? Where do these people come up with these ideas? Mm-hmm. The writers, it was just, I was just like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. And then season three just blew that all out. out heck. And I mm-hmm. love how they didn't try to, didn't try to raise the roof or, 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 or top themselves from last season by doing, oh, we're going to do an even bigger spaceship battle or whatever. It was a more personal thing just within Discovery than taking a ship back. But I, I love the whole the elevator sequence looked incredible. It was incredible. Like, you know, there's so much stuff happening, a lot of, a lot of combat, and they, they, they managed to top themselves without like, okay, let's just make everything bigger and more exciting. Like, no, it was more, more contained and just more focused on the characters, but still mm-hmm. managed to up the ante and make it all the more meaningful. It wasn't. It wasn't about having a big space battle. It was about character building and world building. Yeah, survival. And sir, and and oh, well, and it's just a basic instinct too. As nice as a big, you know, flashy explosion-filled battle sequence might be. To understand that the decisions that get made here today can affect the entire galaxy. Like, those types of scenarios and those types of of odds that are against you can sometimes feel like a bigger scale than any type of battle that you go into. And so, to, to, to have all of that being a part of the culmination of the season, I think, was what made it feel so grandiose in nature without having to spend the big bucks on a big fight sequence. Well, and, and the worst to first type of character development from, we talked about Burnham, but also Ensign Tilly. Yeah. I mean, look, look at, look at silly Tilly from the first season being just a a cadet there for training purposes to first officer of a starship 900 years in the future and and ultimately sitting in the captain's chair making command decisions in a combat situation yeah, facing down osira you know and and calling her every bluff and every move i mean they, again another good character development in tilly mhm love uh, tilly yeah 
there there's so many characters that have had so many great arcs and that's one of the beautiful things about an ensemble cast is even with Saru choosing to stay on Kaminar, I don't feel like we've seen the last of Doug Jones. And even with, you know, Burnham's promotion, we're going to get more family dynamic with Stamets and Hugh. We're going to get more about uh, Detmer and Owo. You know, we're, we're going to get more about uh, you know, basically the entire bridge crew. You know, I want to learn out. I learn about more about Bryce. I want to learn more about. Yeah, yeah. Or, and and book. and book is is technically kind of joining Starfleet now because apparently Stamets isn't the only one who can operate the spore drive. Like that was new, <laughs> but that, that ultimately changes the dynamic because now there's two people who can operate the spore drive, and you know can, you're talking about two different people for discovery, but also multiple people that can go to multiple ships and do it. So yes. like, is this? It, can they? somehow transfer that kind of quote-unquote power to other ships can other ships because because the discovery had three sister ships and that didn't work out very well i think if they um, early on replicate the technology they've been having trouble doing that so far but they are 900 years in the future now if they can find a way to replicate the technology you could theoretically create a second ship and have book working on the second ship and you've got twice the manpower now doing the stuff that Discovery is going to be doing in Season 4. And maybe you retrofit a third ship and bring back Book's brother. Because he's probably got the same he's probably telepathic got... kinetic qualities. Right. And so you raise that aspect of Book's heritage, his lineage, mm-hmm. becomes a bigger part of the new Federation. It very well could be. It's possible. I feel like the Spore Drive is the future. I feel like, you know, the whole with, you know, the crystals, they're kind of volatile, obviously, and for various reasons. And there's only so much of them. They're going to go mine that planet, but, like, there's only going to be so many there. So, like, you know, the spore drive really is the thing that is it's better than warp. Like, you get there instantly. Like, you know, it, it's, it's, it's teleportation. Like, it's great. It, but it's 900-year-old technology from before Kirk. Which is so, it's so weird. (laughs) (laughs) But it's also organic based. Mm -hmm. Which that may have been something that that, the the Kirk predecessors, you know, the first time travel. Okay, so where, let me get, help me with this. Where does Discovery in season one and two fall in the timeline in respect to um, Enterprise? The original Bacula, like Bacula the the Bacula Archer Enterprise. Archer Enterprise. So from my an Archer Enterprise, wouldn't he be before even Discovery? He would be before Discovery, and Discovery is before Kirk. By my understanding, Enterprise was set around a hundred years before Kirk, and Discovery was set closer to ten years before Kirk. So yeah. They out, they figured out this spore drive technology as a way to get around, and it. And, and then they go to Kirk and warp drive is this amazing new thing. <laughs> I, I'm blown away by spore drive and I still don't understand how it works. Uh, but it's pretty cool. I don't think we're supposed to know. I think that's part of the fun. It's like, oh, hey, you you can use mushrooms to go from one side of the galaxy to another. Like, yeah, I love, I love just like, I, oh yeah, we're just getting high on mushrooms and travel to the galaxy. I swear, somebody high must have written this part of the storyline. <laughs> 
I need a, I need a reason for them to travel to to teleport. Shrooms. <laughs> <laughs> yep, definitely somebody high. Okay. Speaking of high, we probably need to say hi to our our patrons and our our program sponsors and the people that we do little ad breaks with this has been a really really awesome discussion we've got a few more tidbits that we want to cover before we call it night but before we do that we're going to say hi to all of those people we'll take a little bit of a breather here and we'll be right back to wrap up our discussion of season three of star trek discovery right here on the ipc podcast don't go away we'll be right back This is IPC. Hey, IPC listeners, this is Joey Mays, intergalactic patron and promoter of my family business, Mays Sandwich Shop. We are proud to be supporting IPC and the endeavors of young, talented individuals like Zach, Ben, and Jake. Should you ever find yourself in the area of Reading, Pennsylvania, be sure to stop by May's Sandwich Shop. Started by my grandfather in 1947, currently owned by my father and operated by my sister and me, May's Sandwich Shop has been serving delicious food to the greater Westlawn area for over 70 years. If you ever do visit, be sure to tell them IPC sent you. We are back continuing our discussion of Star Trek Discovery Season 3. But I guess we've also been talking about some of the movies. We've been talking about some of the other TV shows. We've been talking about uh, the possible the possibilities for Season 4. Like there, There's a lot that's kind of encompassing in this season. And we'll get to some of the Easter eggs that were discovered from this season and how they tie into the movies and shows as well. There were... There were a lot of nods that were made to other shows and stuff, and, and again, just some fantastic writing. But before we do that, we want to give a quick shout-out to some of the people that financially contribute to the program. People like Joey Mays, Ryan H1152, Rachel Perry, Dan Grievous, Carrie Fleming. I know that you guys are on patron.podbean.com slash podcast right now, but uh, we're going to get in touch with you when we get our Patreon set up and running. We're looking to get that done in the next week or two, hopefully, so that uh, we don't have to worry about going through Podbean anymore. We've had some trouble with international patrons, uh, payment processes not going through and stuff. But we appreciate everybody that helps us out with that sort of thing and uh, helps us keep the lights on. We could not do what we do without your help if you're interested in becoming a patron then just go follow us on social media first go find ipc podcast on facebook twitter and instagram and uh, just reach out to us on one of those places there's dms there's little at mentions and stuff you can do let us know that you're interested in helping us out financially and we'll get you the links to the right stuff as soon as it's up and running and a reminder 
that our R-rated IPC program is on Phantom Empire. We're working on getting that back up and running, and I'm actually launching a new Phantom Empire show uh, that's going to be happening every Thursday that's called Phantom News Now. It'll basically just be a weekly news program that gets people caught up on what's going on or not going on if things get pushed back like Morbius just did. And I think A Quiet Place Part 2 got pushed back. I think uh, the new James Bond movie got pushed back. So there's a, there's a lot of movies that are not happening as opposed to movies that are happening right now, which sucks. But uh for that type of news, you can you can find that launching uh, in February, and anything that I may have missed, uh, you can probably find over at Culture Slate, which is what Ben's been up to lately, right, man? Yeah, yeah, we're doing a lot of stuff over there, and you can find at Culture Slate on the social media, which is mostly what I've been doing. So uh, definitely check that out. And we've also got previous episodes of this podcast available at places like StarWarsUnderworld.com. We're on Apple Podcasts. We're on Google Podcasts. We're on our primary hosting site, ipcpodcast.podbean.com. Pod like uh, podcast, bean like green bean, ipcpodcast.podbean.com. We're working on getting ourselves put up on Spotify as well. I had somebody ask me the other day if we were on Spotify, and I was like, no, that's the one thing that we're not on. Darn it. Why'd you have to ask me that? So we're we're working on getting our feeds to more places as well. But uh, be sure to find us and leave a, a rate and review or hit a subscription button wherever you're listening from. Uh, those five stars really do go a long way to helping us with exposure and reviews and things like that. So uh, be sure to go check us out wherever podcasts are found. Absolutely. Okay, so I went to a website and just found a whole bunch of Star Trek Easter eggs that got mentioned over the course of this season. Things that tie into the Star Trek universe, that tie into previous seasons, that tie into itself at some points. Uh, it's kind of crazy, but uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run through these rather quickly, and y'all feel free to jump in on any that may stand out to you. But uh, there's a quote in the very first episode of Season 3 where Book says, The Gorn destroyed two light years worth of subspace. The Gorn are the species that Kirk fought against in that one-on-one -on -one valley battle that became like a really, really iconic episode. That They're Trek Trandoshans. Basically, Trek Trandoshans. That's a good way of, of putting it, yeah. But... Uh, they they are they're called the Gorn Hegemony. That's that's their name. Oh. That's their that's their group. Kind of like the Klingon Empire, the the Cardassian Empire, the Federation of Planets, and then there's the Gorn Hegemony. And they're located in the Alpha Quadrant, and apparently they caused a lot of damage. Um, another thing the book mentions is needing Benamite to be able to fly quantum slipstream. That is a technology that was used on Star Trek Voyager a couple of different times in order to help get them several light years closer to home. And I'm pretty sure the Borg use folds in subspace to be able to create tunnels that take them from one place to another at faster than light speed. So wow. slipstream is something that's been used a lot. Um, I believe in the first couple of episodes, one of the first two episodes or so, they mention using solar sails 
to be able to get around different parts of the system. Because of the burn. Because of the burn, they're trying to find alternate means of sublight speed that will take them from one place to another. And the solar sails are something that we, we actually saw used in an episode of Deep Space Nine with uh, Ben Sisko and his son Jake. They, uh, I think they found like some sort of subspace carrier wave that ended up projecting them way out of their star system and pushed them all the way to Cardassia in a matter of minutes. So solar sails <clears throat> were proven pretty effective. And then the temporal wars, the time wars. You know, I think of Doctor Who when they talk about stuff like this, but the temporal cold war was something that was referenced heavily in the Enterprise TV series. And a lot of yeah. people make fun of Enterprise and, and they ridicule it and they kind of cast it out like a bastard son almost in some instances. But to have the temporal wars become a pretty strong focus on time travel at this point in Discovery kind of legitimizes a pretty major storyline from Enterprise, which is pretty cool. Quantum torpedoes are something that gets mentioned in this season, and they were first introduced in Deep Space Nine and then were used in a couple of the movies after that. They used them in First Contact and again in Star Trek Nemesis. So nice. they uh, they got used fairly frequently. As Adira is trying to um, solve the identity crisis that they are in, at one point they mention that they can speak seven languages, and they cook a mean Bajoran Hasperat. I remember that interaction. She's done an engineering trying to decode. Mm -hmm. and, and she's getting into it with Stamets. Because Stamets is kind of harassing her a little bit. And, she's, and she kind of pops off with this, this quote mm -hmm. right here. Mm -hmm. And everybody kind of raised their eyebrows at Bajoran Hasperat. I'm like, what? <laughs> what? But, I mean, Hasperat's a food that we see quite a lot in Deep Space Nine. Which is... Pretty interesting. Um, we've already kind of touched on Navarre, formerly Vulcan. Uh, it was also the name of a combat cruiser used in the Enterprise episode Shadows of Pajem. So Navarre's a pretty um, historical name and must have been a mutually agreed upon name in order for Romulans and Vulcans to both be okay with it. Um, at one point, they are talking about invoking security protocol 49.09, which is the treatment of prisoners aboard a starship. And in the motion picture, um, Star Trek, the motion picture, the first movie, security protocol 49.09 is mentioned in that movie as well. I believe, wow. I believe somebody gets accused of violating that protocol at some point. And so uh, it shows up dating all the way back to the motion picture which you just recently watched pops doesn't that happen like in the in the 80s didn't that movie didn't that movie come out like 40 years ago plus uh it was it was in the 1979 mm. and i and i realized how old i am <laughs> when, when i was watching when that was movie when that movie was produced yeah it wasn't it wasn't very long after star wars because you know star trek you know people love to pit them against each other but like star star trek inspired star wars and then star wars inspired star trek to go to the big screen so like you know mm -hmm. that, that that picked all that off but uh yeah so it was in that era mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and ben do you remember the andorian named 
Rin, the one who didn't have the antenna because Osira had cut them off. Right, yeah. Yeah, I liked him. Sad to see him die. He was played by Noah Averback Katz, who in real life is married to Mary Wiseman. <laughs> That's cool. So you got a, a husband-wife tandem sharing some screen time over the course of this show. Was that I, just, is it just random or did they meet because of the show, I wonder? Uh, I think she used some of her influence to land him a role, possibly. Oh, okay. So the other way around, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, she'd already been on the show for a couple of seasons and she was the first Star Trek character to drop the F word. So, I mean, <laughs> she's got some pull. Uh, Little Tilly dropped an F bomb? Mm hmm. <laughs> I remember. I was. That was. That was pretty. That was, that was a pretty he, big deal back in. You mean Captain Killy? Captain Killy. <laughs> and I already mentioned it earlier in the program, but at one point, the Section Thirty One Agent Kovich makes mention of the Kelvin timeline. So I did they, not catch that. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. Traveling from an alternate universe created by the temporal incursion of a Romulan mining ship. That Romulan mining ship was the one from Star Trek 2009. So, And then the Guardian of Forever, the, the one we were talking about, Carl, earlier. Um, I like he, Carl. He was, his, his character, his type of character, was originally from an original series episode titled The City on the Edge of Forever. I literally do not remember this episode. Like, at all. But apparently there was a rather omniscient being that had a portal very similar to the open view port type of portal that we see in Discovery that gave Kirk and Spock and a couple of others a view into the past, the present, and the future. You know, one thing we kicked around about that character, Carl, is initially I wondered if he was part of the Q continuum. Well, in the type in, of power that he had, the type of power that he possesses, it seems very similar. And I can't help but wonder if the Q character was based on the Guardian of Forever with a little more charisma. So, you know, there there could be some crossover there for yeah. sure. Um, and, a, 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 bo a bonus little fact for you that I just I just remembered. Um, so, uh, Kov Agent Kovic, who is the guy you mentioned a minute ago, yeah. um, who is the doctor guy that's kind of interrogating people, whatever, he's mm -hmm. played by David Cronenberg, who is a pretty famous director. He directed one of your favorite movies, Zach, The Fly, among others. A favorite movie? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That movie creeped me out. I know. I had nightmares for a week. But he's he is a he is a fantastic director and a really good actor too. Like his screen time that he had with Michelle Yeoh was fantastic. So good. So good. Dialogue. The dialogue between the two of them was amazing. Um and then we talked about the the, the Voyager being in, in this, uh, Voyager J helped lead the attack on Viridian in the season finale. But then there are some other ships as well that made it into the fleet that I feel are worth mentioning. One of them being the USS Yelchin, which showed up in Episode 7. And that's in memoriam of Anton Yelchin, who passed away in 2016. Um, if you don't know him, that's uh, that's Chekhov from the... Uh, Kelvin timeline, so yeah. Star Trek kind of paid respects to Star Trek 
in in a certain way there. And then in episode five, which is when they are arriving at Starfleet headquarters, you see uh, a ship amongst all of the other ships. Uh, it's a blink and you miss it type of thing, but in there you had the USS Nog. And Nog is a very endearing and lovable and awesome character from Star Trek Deep Space Nine, played by Aaron Eisenberg, who passed away late 2019 due to health and so they they named a ship after nog and then his classification of ship is called the eisenberg class according to behind the scenes uh info and and guidebooks and stuff like that so he got cool he got a double whammy because he uh from from what i understand Nog became the first member of his species to become a Starfleet captain. So he made Starfleet history and definitely deserved having his own ship named after him. So Yeah, and from what I've heard, Eisenberg himself was a huge hit among fans, was always going to oh. conventions and stuff like that, and was a huge ambassador for mm-hmm. Star Trek fandom. Mm-hmm. He w- he had his own podcast for a while. Wow! That he, that he was on with uh, Garrett Wang from uh, Star Trek Voyager. The two of them had their own Star Trek related, geek related podcast that they did together for a time. So that's great. Uh, he was he was a big hit at cons. He was a big hit among the fans, and he's definitely missed. So it's nice that they got to throw in some of that some of that respect to, I mean, the Voyager series by letting the Voyager name continue, uh, the Yelchin by paying their respects to Anton, and then the USS Nog, which is an Eisenberg class, like, all of that. Very subtle, but very classy. Absolutely. Okay, time for a couple of discussion questions to to wrap things up. I feel like we've done a lot of setting the stage for Season 4, so we may skip that question because we've just been speculating on that pretty much the whole night. Um, but who was your favorite character from this season? Like it can be somebody that's been around since day one that just had a really good character arc this season, or it could be somebody new that's been introduced and you really enjoyed having them. Uh, Ben, does anybody come to mind? Ooh, I, it feels like a cop out, but I'm going to say book. I really enjoyed kind of his perspective on things and being this kind of outsider character that wasn't really with Starfleet, but kind of, you know, slowly kind of was won over by them. Mm -hmm. And then just, you know, has kind of like being kind of a a good, I don't know, person to kind of help adjust Burnham to this whole new situation and, you know, and he's got a freaking cool ship. My gosh. Like that thing is, is I don't even understand how it works. Like it's so, it's just and go back together and like, it can, it can fly like upside down. You know what it reminds me of? It kind of reminds me of the twilight from the clone wars. Yeah, it does. If it like was able just to like come apart at the shape, the shape and configuration reminded me more of the twilight than anything else. Also, um, runner up would be, uh, we haven't talked a lot about him. This thing was grudge, or I should say she grudge the cat. Love <laughs> the <grudge>. She's queen. 
Yeah, at one point they're getting ready for a big fight and they're like checking things off their to-do list and one of the things he says is like, the queen is secure. And I'm like, oh my gosh. So, so here's, here's a twist on that character and the sidekick is, is Book, this Discovery's version of Han Solo and Grudge the Wookiee. Oh, yes. Kind of, kind of the and the cool ship, the rogue and the, the rogue, the rogue danger. with the cool ship. Yeah, <laughs> I could see that. I think I think book was also kind of meant to personify somebody who is looking at Starfleet from an outsider's perspective, because to people who are new to the show, they're kind of looking at Starfleet and going, what the heck is this? What is it supposed to be? And book is kind of looking at it from that perspective, too, like. What is Starfleet even? Like, what is it supposed to be? Because I've never seen it do anything for me. I've never seen it help me in my life. Like, what's Starfleet done for me lately? Why do you hold so tightly to it, Michael? Because the only person I've ever learned to trust is myself. But he swings over to buying into the whole Federation philosophy of putting others before yourself. Yeah, he does. The greater good. He does. Yeah, and that that's a good testament to to character development for mm-hmm. sure. Absolutely. Have you thought of anybody, pops? It's so hard because there's so many of these characters that I really enjoy. I mean, it it like Ben was saying about book. It's almost too easy to pick somebody like Burnham. So uh, you know, I'm going to go back um, to the Reno character. Uh, yeah, the, the Commander Reno. Yeah, because she's so different from all of the other characters. She's so biting. She's so sarcastic. She's so quick-witted. She one-ups Stamets. Stamets is is just, he ends up a stammering fool when he goes up against her because he just can't hold his own against her. And well, I, I he's, wish she had a little bit more of a role. He's used to being the witty one, and when he has to match wits with somebody, it makes him flustered. Yeah. But the but the, the runner up, if I get to pick a runner up, would sure. have to be somebody um like Adira and or um Gray. Yeah. I mean I I like the Gray character. And so yeah, those are my those would be my two favorites. And she's outside of the, the big flashy characters, those two really kind of keep everything running. Mm-hmm. Well and, and they 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 keep they keep adding depth and complexity to Star Trek because not only did we get to explore more of Trill culture, but there was some some representation that got to happen in a very practical way. I think this was something that I've talked with both of you separately before is, you know, uh, Blue Del Barrio, who played Adira, identifies as non-binary and got to present some of that in their character in Star Trek in a way that made sense. Like you said, addressing a trill by the pronoun they makes sense. And it wasn't something that was just thrust into the conversation to just have that as part of the conversation. It was inclusive, not just in a representation perspective, but also in a characterization perspective, getting to have that dynamic included in the way that the character is formed 
it just it it made for a smoother transition when you're talking about identity and that kind of thing because now you can explore trill culture and potentially have conversations about people in real life who identify as non-binary if that's the direction you want to take the conversation you may not have to and i think that's the cool thing about adira's character and, and probably why adira is my favorite character like or just or just tall maybe i'll use the cop out with 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 tall because senatol was a character that i was intrigued to meet and then i found out that senatol was dead and we've got the tall symbiont living in adira i, I am tall i am i am tall and I'm, <laughs> and I'm like wait 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 excuse me what and you cut to the credits right after that and it's like wait no tell me more what do you mean by this i think we were watching that episode together and you, and, you did kind of melt down and i was like um excuse <laughs> me what but the the tall symbiote was also in gray so you know they they have that that bond that's been formulated through the three of them and even the previous host beyond that and the season finale like those two were probably my favorite episodes of the season because it reaffirmed a lot of the trill culture stuff uh that we saw in deep space nine and then it also kind of took it a step forward without having to use the name dax a lot of people wanted to see the name dax show up and we're like no Let's take it a different direction. Let's not have a direct connection to the stuff that happened from Deep Space Nine, but still make it feel familiar. And they did that with Adira's character time and time again. And I'm really curious to see what happens to all of them in the next season. So, you know, Michael did have a great, great story arc. If I had to pick a runner-up, I guess it would be Michael because she has just come so far from season one and to, to get from, you know, committing mutiny to get the captain's chair in the first episode to getting demoted and then getting promoted over the course of this season. She has really gone through a lot of hard knocks and come away stronger for it on the other side. Exactly. Sorry, that was a bit of a tangent there. I'm going to take it no. for now. Great. <laughs> Great, good stuff. Love it. I completely agree. This has just and... been a conversation. Like it's <laughs> it's gone any which way that we've wanted it to, and been able to just bring up whatever the heck we want. It's been so. It's did, been did cool. You transit, did you bridge over from character to scene? No, I haven't. That was my next thing. Was <laughs> was there a favorite scene that people had? I'm guessing you're chomping at the bit if you're asking about it. Did All you right. did you have a favorite scene? Well, I mean, that, like again, there were so many. So many different scenes, so many different um, types of approaches they took to the different arcs. But I, I can't avoid the final scene when Burnham steps onto the bridge at the very mm -hmm. end of the show. Mm -hmm. And everybody turns to her and everybody address, you know, comes to attention the way Starfleet people do. Mm -hmm. um, and new just, uniforms, though. Yeah, new uniforms. That just, was interesting. And, and just that realization of... Uh, the culmination of Burnham's character uh, is seen in that final step onto the bridge and call to attention and Stamets giving her the stink eye and just everything that went into that last little bit just made, just really 
stood out for me as an outstanding scene, you know, in the entire for the entire season. Yeah, so that that's got to be my favorite scene. Well, and it and it's that scene that gives me the satisfaction of knowing if this show gets delayed or if it doesn't get renewed, that final scene was enough to kind of tie up a lot of loose ends and help you realize, okay, Discovery is number 1 here to stay in the future. They're not trying to find a way to go home. And number 2 it's got a mission. It's got a purpose, much like the Enterprise of old, much like Voyager's mission was to try and get home. You know, Discovery has a purpose now. It's not just a lone ship that is kind of off on its own, doing its own thing. It's a part of something again. And it's got a mission, and that mission is to, to help rebuild the Federation, which kind of gives you a lot of hope as the season concludes. Did you notice that they played like the original Star Trek music during the credits after it oh, finished? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, notice that. Well, and you know, tied with that final scene, I think right before she steps out of the bridge, she goes back and she thanks and greets that um, that lone Federation liaison officer who was stuck out on a yes. bar outpost. The guy who appeared to have an East Indian heritage that was playing this great character did we lose something no no but but the way we're we're taken back to when she first meets him during that year without Mm -hmm. um discovery in the new world yeah she meets this character and he's still holding the federation flag waving it going ah the federation's still here and and then she circles back around when everything's better and sees him again, that's a really cool scene, too, because um, she thanks him for being solid Mm -hmm. all the way through the persevering Mm -hmm. through the most difficult, darkest days of the Federation, and then he gets to see the new birth. Yeah. The renaissance of the Federation coming back out of the Middle Ages of the burn, the, the, the Dark Ages. Oh, <laughs> sorry. Somebody cliche-ish analogies. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I'm not groaning at that. I'm, I'm, I'm taking it all in because this season, like I said earlier, only 13 episodes, but it packs a lot in there. Like I, we didn't even really touch on the fact that Tilly was willing to sacrifice her crew in order to stop discovery and save the quadrant, save Starfleet. Like that was to keep, a to keep discovery away from Osira. Basically. And, and was was willing to do whatever it took, even if it meant, you know, dying of, of oxygen deficiency in order to, you know, make the tough call, to make the, the big sacrifices. And that was that was really important, I think, for her character development to realize it's not all fun and games. Like, there are tough decisions that have to be made, and sometimes you've got to be the one to make it. And so that that's pretty close to being my favorite scene, but um, I, I really, really like the scene. I think it's in the finale where you actually see 
the hollow recording of Sukal's mom passing away. The grief that is evoked from the expressions of those observing from Sukal kind of suffering from PTSD because he, he doesn't like to go in that room. He doesn't like to face that fear. He doesn't like to face that grief. But he had people around him this time that were there for him, that were supporting him. And to, to see that, that raw emotion in the holographic child Sukal and then the grown-up version both of them sharing that same moment, reliving it and recognizing that it was that type of grief. It was that type of circumstance that caused the emotional outburst that was the burn, you know, to have all of that finally coming together and making sense was was really really fascinating to observe because the the music was great the moment was great that the pacing of it the allowance of you to kind of figure it all out and put two and two together and recognize this is how it happened like they didn't spoon feed it to the viewer but they also like gave you just enough for you to be able to like figure it out and i i really appreciated that and that was that was just a really, really great moment. There wasn't a whole lot of words spoken, but that sequence spoke volumes to the repercussions of what happened throughout the course of the season. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, for me, I think it's not a very deep scene, but it's one that just came to mind that I remember it's from the, I think it's from the episode where they have to go and rescue book and you know, from Osira, and that's when all that business gets started. Yeah. But uh, it's one moment where they they find Bookship, they come across it, and they're like, oh, he's hailing us, and they bring him on the screen, and they're like, oh, where's Book, where's Book? And then you hear, like, meowing. <laughs> and, then, and then Grudge <laughs> just lo- looks up, and he's, like, right up on the screen, he's looking, he's, like, meowing, and they're like, and Tilly's like, Grudge? And they're, like, looking at her, like, what? You know this cat? Like, what's going on here? <laughs> <laughs> it's just a funny little moment. Uh, that is that is a cute moment, and as a cat person, it does not surprise me that that would be your favorite moment from the no. season. Pretty much any moment involving Grudge is uh, is a great moment, in my opinion. <laughs> uh, that's very fair. Um, I do think we need to get like a, a more conversational scene as our quote of the night. I am of the inclination that the conversation between Vance and Osira as they're sitting down at the table from one another is a really poignant scene for the season and just really, really poignant for, for the, for the characters and, and the fate of the quadrant to, yeah to hear each side's justification and explanation for why they've been doing what they, what they've been doing. And then the discussion of the potential armistice, like, that's a that's a pretty important sequence for the season and has some really really great dialogue in it. Oh yeah, that's up there in probably top 5 scenes for the series thus far. Well, we're not discussing so much. Fives. If we try and do top 5s tonight, we're never going to get this episode <laughs> no, done. No, no, don't even go there. Don't even go there. But uh yeah, great stuff. Funeral. Oh, <laughs> oh man. That was that was a great one too. Oh man. Well, Whatever we end up 
putting in here in post-production is going to be a great quote. And uh, I'm just going to leave it to the magic fingers of Ben Hart's editing skills as we present to you all tonight's quote of the night. This armistice. It's very impressive. We made a lot of concessions. I told you I came to make a deal. There's one more thing. Ask, I'm in a charitable mood. Who's going to be the face of this? In official Federation matters, who's actually going to represent the chain? Yeah, I see what you're getting at. Can't be me, my reputation. Well, I would appoint someone appropriate. A well-respected scientist, perhaps. And that person won't just be a proxy for you. Of course not. That is not the truth. Ah, he glitched. Ask me again. For this armistice to be worth anything, then the person representing the chain has to be proven credible. And the only way that that can happen is if he or she functions completely independently of you and tries you for your crimes. Excuse me? They're well documented. You've never stood trial because no one's been able to compel the chain. You're staring at the past. I just drew you a real map to the future. The past is the only light with which we can see the future. Your willingness to do this will send a message, and I promise you I will not let anyone forget that. It's just more abstractions. The past cannot be undone. But it could be made right. We all had to make hard choices because of the burn. Spare me your judgment. Sarah, I want peace. I want the Federation to join the chain, and I want to learn from your great society. The burn has left us with a legacy of, of fear, of isolation, of scarcity that still clouds our moral clarity, a clarity that I fight for on a daily basis, and I ask my people to die for. So if that's the reason that we can't reach an accord today, well, I can live on it. All right, that was the quote of the night, and we're going to go right ahead and get into the next segment and the last segment of the evening. And uh, it's fitting that the last segment's also going to be the one that comes from uh, our guest for the evening. First time on the show, first time talking barbecue with us. Uh, so time to get out your hashtags, everybody. If you're listening live, put it in the chat. That's basically just George. Um, <laughs> if you're If you're listening... On one of our platforms like uh, StarWarsUnderworld.com or Podbean or Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you consume your podcast, put it out on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, anything else that carries a hashtag. It's time for Hashtag BBQ Watch. Barbecue. 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 Is there any other food 
There really isn't. I had no. I had bar- I had barbecue for lunch, and I was going to review that place, <laughs> but your your meal tonight just kind of blew my sandwich out of the water. I went. I went to this little place in in Dallas that was close to one of the one of the machines that I was servicing. It smelled amazing, but the food was only so so. But what you had, I might have to get next time. It's not even on the Chili's three for ten menu, which is what I usually get. But the piles of meat that ended up on this burger were just astounding. When they bring the food to your plate and it draws the attention of passersby where total strangers stop and comment on your pile of food mm-hmm. that's epic. <laughs> and this this burger was epic. So, yeah, try try and try and describe it to us. It so, was called it was called the Boss Burger. Yeah, it's, it, it's a it's a new burger on the Chili's menu called the Boss Burger, and it is a boss of all burgers. It had a great quarter pound patty that, okay. was, that was grilled to perfection. I mean, it was crispy grilled, mm. and then on top of that, they piled brisket. What? On top of that, they piled barbecue. Pork, pulled pork. Oh. On top of that, they had smoked chili cheese sausage. What? And on top of that, drizzled this pretty good, but probably out of a can, barbecue sauce that really topped it all off. So three different types of barbecue on top of the grilled burger. Was there bacon? I thought there was there bacon. There was bacon on the foundation down closer to the burger. Yeah. What? Yeah. So you got beef, bacon, brisket, pulled pork, and sausage. All on this one burger. Hallelujah. <laughs> it was much... Hallelujah! Too, praise the Lord! It was much too big to eat as a burger. I had to take the top bun off and eat my way from the top down. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my gosh. Don't you just love a burger that you can't actually fit in your mouth? <laughs> oh, my gosh. And, and the people walking by are looking at it, and they're gawking, and they're just like, how are you going to eat that? And I'm like, one bite at a time. It's like <laughs> you, see people, you see people outside the window just selling tickets, like, let's watch this guy. Let's see how he's going to – what strategy is going to be. It's like commentators outside, like, oh, he's going for the fork and knife strategy. There's a famous <laughs> restaurant in the panhandle of Texas up in Amarillo, near Amarillo, called the Big Texan. And it's an iconic restaurant. I have been there. I've been to the Big Texan. The 72-ounce steak. It's legendary. You can eat that monster steak in one sitting. You get your entire meal free. Of course, you take a strip straight to the Amarillo Hospital, but, <laughs> but you get a free steak. <laughs> so this burger kind of seemed like that kind of event tonight. It wasn't a meal. It was an event. Well, and it also reminds me a little bit of a, another place here in Arlington called Jambos. Oh, yeah. They have a sandwich that I've talked about on this podcast before that's called the Jambo Texan. I don't know if you've seen this menu item before, Pops. I just sent it to you in a private chat. But, my goodness, this is piled about as heavy as your sandwich was. It had brisket and pulled pork and sausage 
and I think it had ribs on it too. Like you can order this at the Jambos down the street. Ah, oh, damn, that's a big sandwich. That yeah, I sent it. I sent it to Ben too, and I don't know how much it costs, but I bet it's worth every penny. That's another one. Just like okay, pick it up and try to fit in your mouth, and then fail miserably. Yeah, no way. Food. Well, and you you break your teeth off jumping into the ribs. Right. So you got to take those ribs off. You got you got to pull you got to pull the rib meat off or yeah. something. Yeah. But I mean, it's just it's two pieces of Texas toast with a giant. What is that giant toothpick going right down the middle of it? Mm-hmm. You probably needed one of those big placeholder toothpicks for your sandwich tonight. Yep. So That's a dang. Do you, here's here's something that I was thinking of, and I know that they don't really do a whole lot of like special addendums, but wouldn't it be cool if Chili's was able to put like some onion rings under the top bun of that sandwich as well? That would have that would have really topped it off some well. some some crisp some of those crispy onions yeah well and i think both of these sandwiches really needed a, a good tomato based sauce mm-hmm. just drowning it mm. i got a little cut but you got you got a, yeah. you got more of a drizzle than a drowning yeah the the covid thing i got a little sidecar cup mm-hmm. of barbecue sauce and that's mm-hmm. just not the way we roll you need to drown this thing in in good barbecue sauce <sighs> see this is the plight of <laughs> Doing this segment at the end of the episode. No place is open to run and get it now. Well, yeah, nobody's going to have it. I mean, around here, you've got Whataburger. But the closest thing they would have is maybe the sweet and spicy bacon burger. Which is still pretty good, but it's not a boss burger. So, my next trip to Chili's, I'm probably trying that thing. That is just crazy. Yeah, yeah. Crazy ben, stuff. Are you are you gonna go to Chili's now and see if it's on the menu out at the Chili's by you? I might. I might. I haven't been to Chili's in forever. All I know is I just I just see those memes from the office. There's God in this Chili's tonight. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The the people that, that that make a make a meme where the like the top caption is like everybody on the, the first day after COVID restrictions release. And everybody's yeah. like, I feel God in this Chili's tonight. <laughs> and it's funny, you were talking about the, the big text, and I, I promise this will be the last thing because it's like getting on midnight, and we need to just like not do this show much longer because it's late. But mentioning uh, the big Texan and uh, just burgers in general uh, reminds me of a place. Have you ever heard of Mugshots? Oh, I don't think so. It's a local-ish chain around me. Um, I know they've expanded a good bit. They're based, I think, in Mississippi. But they have on their menu, they have a bunch of great burgers. And if you ever find one, go check them out. Uh, we recently discovered them, and they're great. Um, but they describe their signature burger is the mugshot. It's not available for takeout, and it's described as follows. This monster is three seasoned patties piled high with six strips of hickory smoked bacon, cheddar, and Swiss cheese, mayo, mustard, lettuce, tomato, and red onion served with our beer-battered fries and onion rings and a hand-battered pickle. Finish the whole plate in 12 minutes or less, and it's on, on us, plus a T-shirt, if not 25 bucks in a stomachache. Good luck. A five bucks in a stomachache. So if you finish all 12 minutes, it's yours. And the electronic heart defibrillator right there at the table. 
We have paramedics standing by. That's right. Served by a paramedic. On the journey of your choice. <laughs> That's a sandwich. That's, oh my gosh. Oh my goodness. And twenty you gotta eat it in twenty-five minutes? Twelve minutes. Twelve minutes. <laughs> that's no, I just... think you'd need the Heimlich maneuver too. <laughs> That's a yeah. That's that's more of a sprint than a marathon. Like if I didn't have a time limit, then great. But twelve minutes is just oh man. Three patties, a triple triple decker with everything <laughs> on it. Yeah. No, I'm not gonna. I'm just gonna pay for it and eat it slow. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And probably take half of it home like I did tonight with the Boss Burger. <laughs> so I get to in, in, enjoy it twice. Yeah, you get you get to reheat it, and you know, leftover barbecue is just as good a second day. That's, George that's says in the chat, I just happen to have a Chili's about a mile away from my apartment. Must try this burger now. <laughs> oh my gosh! We've already enticed people to go and try this thing out, and that that is what we do. We give public endorsements of barbecue-related foods that we would definitely try again. I give a public endorsement to Hurtado Barbecue every time I step outside the door. I bought one of their hats, and I wear a Hurtado hat to work almost every day nowadays. And they had this thing called brisket fries available today. Oh, God. And cut potato wedges topped with homemade queso and diced brisket and green peppers. I was like, oh my gosh, that looks like heaven. But that should be illegal. It really should be illegal. Oh yeah. Uh, we I, I told the story of your first Texas Twinkie. <laughs> I, I swear I had never seen your eyes roll as far back into your head. I think that was a spiritual experience. <laughs> Just about. <laughs> never forget getting that call at work. Pop, where are you? Where are you, Pops? What's wrong, son? I gotta come to the house. He wasn't telling me why. Oh, I'm at work. Let me come to you. Okay, be sure and come. Like <laughs> <laughs> some, you know, flood in the house, a car broken. No, it's food. just the best food on the planet. <laughs> it's just food. <laughs> it's oh, just man. food. Not just food. The best piece of morsel of food on the planet. Oh my goodness. I I still have yet to find any type of barbecue-related food that comes anywhere close to Hurtado. Ben, the next time you're in the DFW area, we're going to Hurtado. Hell yeah. So, yeah, we talked about three or four different pieces of barbecue on tonight's segment. Y'all got a whole bunch of bonus features, and now we're going to have to figure out what we're going to talk about on next week's episode. But I guess we'll worry about next week when next week comes around. It's funny how that works out. Which is like Some weeks we're like, ah, I don't know what to talk about. Then, you know, other weeks we're like, oh, hey, let's just throw in five things. Well, we just got here. too much to talk about now. Yeah, for Old sure. Belly burn-ins. Oh. <laughs> nachos. Oh, my God. They had barbacoa tostadas last week. Oh, that just looked to die for. I need to get there when they open, though, at 11 a.m. because that's when they have everything in stock. Yeah, if you get there, out. if you get there by like 1:30 or two, they're already out of like two or three of their meats for the day. Oh my gosh! Because they just go through so much stuff; it's crazy. Well, look at the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of which, I think it's about time we try and wrap. Things. Oh, were we still on? Yeah, just about. <laughs> 
we're all we're all fading a little bit, but before we fade completely out of the picture, a big thanks to my dad, Pops, for this was an honor. You guys hanging are, out. You guys are legendary in the the intergalactic world here, and uh, it was fun. My son, my other son, who has preceded me on this show, uh, Joel, um, talk listens to your podcast all the time. Instead of turning on the radio, he turns on the podcast when he and I go somewhere. Uh, when I picked him, when I picked him up to take him to school today, he was listening to our episode about the Emperor's New Groove. Oh my gosh! I, I, I caught the one where you were talking about Atlantis, mm-hmm. and and he was in the car while you were slamming his favorite movie, and it was just hilarious to watch him. <laughs> oh my gosh watches the wild every day and i can't i'm with y'all I, it, it is the worst piece of cinemagraphic you know oh <laughs> worst, I mean, i'm glad we didn't turn you off joel no, there's nothing gnu under the under the moon with that <laughs> that movie it's just terrible <laughs> Anyway, but he loves it. Yeah, we, 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 yeah, we did tear that one a new one. <laughs> That's probably going to be an episode of R.I.P.C. one of these days. Just turns into a drinking game. That that that's a movie that would drive Ben to drink. I bet it's possible. It's possible. But well, uh, th- thank you for letting me let me sit in tonight because I I do love this series. I've fallen in love with, you know, just at about the time you think the Voyager crew is your family. And you think you could like no other, you know, tangent of Star Trek? You find Discovery, and and I've fallen in love with this show too. It's oh, a lot of fun great. to sit around and talk about it. Well, hey, well, look, uh, just speaking for myself, anytime you want to come on the show, by all means, this was a blast. I'm glad we finally got to uh, have you on the show, and uh, this was a blast. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, we we did have a lot of fun. It's so much fun that this has almost turned into like a two and a half hour long <laughs> podcast, and uh, not our record. We've had we've had records that go up as high as like what four and a half hours before, but this one <laughs> did have a lot of really fun discussions. And if you're looking for more fun discussions, then hit us up on social media as well. Uh, IPC podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find me at Zach the Voice Z A C H the Voice on Twitter. Baseball season's right around the corner, so if you want to keep up with you know the radio stuff that I'm doing for the local baseball team, be sure to hit me up over there. And uh, Ben, you're just you're just causing problems all over the Twitterverse lately. <laughs> where 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 can the folks keep up with your with your trollitions? Yeah, they can follow my uh, shenanigans and uh, trolling at Ben Hart with no E, and uh, also at the SWU. Sometimes I upset even more people on there, which is fun. And then uh, at Culture Slate, yeah, all over the place. Uh, there's there's a lot to keep up with. We're just we're just busy, busy people. I'm in I'm in grad school and working a full time job, and doing this podcast, and doing baseball, and gonna be doing that uh, fandom news now over at fandom empire like do i sleep anymore i don't know if i do it's good I, to be in demand though doesn't isn't it feel nice it feels nice to be wanted that is true so uh but what i really want to do right now is go to bed so yep yep we're, we're gonna we're gonna pull the plug on tonight's episode as fun as it was Hopefully we get to have more fun next week. We've got more awesome content on the horizon for you guys. 
possibly more WandaVision discussions. Camp Cretaceous just recently launched. We're going to be talking about Soul, maybe Wonder Woman. There's a lot of stuff that's still new out there that is still out there for us to discuss. But that's going to do it for episode 315 of the Intergalactic Peace Coalition. For my pops and for Ben Hart, I'm Zach Arnold. Thanks for tuning in. We hope that you'll tune in next week. But until that time comes around, we're just going to leave you with this final thought. Truth enlightens the mind, but won't always bring happiness to your heart. We hope that you join Zach Arnold and Ben Hart next week on IPC. But until then, good night, everyone. Osiris, you're kind of an asshole. Yeah, but I, I want to bring the Emerald Chain and the Federation together. Uh, I, I think we should team up, and I should become the new president of the Federation. But... No! Go to jail! Do not collect $200. Go straight to jail! Basically the whole quote. <laughs>